Legacy CRM platforms have made you compromise for far too long. With HubSpot CRM platform, you don't have to choose between enterprise tools that are powerful or easy to use. It gives you both, so your marketing, sales, and service teams can align with ease, accelerate sales, and anticipate every customer need. Finally, there's a CRM platform that helps you run better so you can grow better without complexity ever getting in the way. Learn more at HubSpot.com. Recorded live. Black Power, BB48, my hotel. Welcome to Feel on the Ground Radio, Think Tank Thursday. It's your brother Ball. We're getting it in live tonight. And, uh, you know how we do out here. You know, um, we're going to definitely put it down for you nice tonight. We got a, we got uh, some food for thought going on tonight. Tonight we're going to take a delve into some uh, uh, favorite books and things of that nature, you know what I mean? Um, get, our, get our read on and put some information out to the people that, you know, if you ain't privy to the book, you might not have read it. And even if you might have the book, you might not have got a chance to get to it. You know how it is sometimes. Uh, I know people sometimes get books and, you know, so have to want to read the whole thing, but only uh, get the parts that they feel that they need at that time. So hopefully we had a couple pieces and some uh, literature that you like. And uh, you get it on nice from there. You open up my own. Open my chat room up. You know, anything right in here? You sign in. Put all this together. Like I said, family, we're going to get it in nice tonight. Uh, we're going to throw in some literature. I'm going to be reading from um, several different books. Uh, I got my Marcus Garvey, Hero, a first biography by Tony Martin. I got my Blueprint for Black Power. And just for off the cuff, I got The Making of the White Man. History, tradition, and teachings of Elijah Muhammad. We're gonna we're gonna get into some some different things here. Um, a lot of references in in this book, so uh, you know we're not gonna just go into something that's just spewing off. But um, that's what's going on. Right, power. What I got out there? Brother calls out there. Yeah, Black Power. Let's go in the chat room. We're going to definitely get it in nice tonight. Um, had a lot of things going on this past couple uh, past couple weeks. Um, we've been already well... We've been all hopefully been preparing well and dutifully for the upcoming days. It would only get it will only become more hostile until we tame the environment. Uh, it's soon to come. We will be getting on in a situation. We're dealing with. Uh, we will be dealing with um, certain things that went on last week with the Iron Rod Squad 
And this thing that the brother keeps throwing out, evolution, we're going to jump on that with two feet, you know. Uh, we're going to ride hard on that. And my brother Little, we want to go into the back room to get our strategy together and how we're going to attack this thing. But we're definitely going to have to put down work in because a lot of things just are not adding up. So we refuse to take the... We uh, we refuse to take the consensus. That's what I said. We refuse to take the consensus view on how this thing uh, happened out here. Let me get myself together. But we had a couple things going on. You know, the neighborhood sometimes is vicious. So one of the things I implore the people to do is uh, please take time and to. Invest the time in the youth. Just a couple words a day. Do a lot. You know, uh, out a little bit. Today was my my baby's, uh, my daughter's, it was my daughter's born day today. My mother's birthday. And, you know, out and about with them for a little while today. Checking out the community. You know, just checking out the neighborhood and everything. And um, we have to definitely be vigilant in keeping the uh, homosexual agenda from uh, just overwhelming our African population. I see it is at a more than overwhelming, all-time highly everywhere. So we got to be definitely um, stay fast on that. So in the other couple of weeks, we're going to have a program on that. But until then, I'd like to uh, say that I also had a also had a piece of literature that I got uh, a couple of weeks back. Uh, well, no, not even a couple of weeks, maybe a week ago. Uh, the assassination of Khalid Muhammad. Let me see where the book is. Um, by a brother named Riley, Jeff Riley, I believe is his name. Uh, I give the book a overall. I say I give it like a seven, maybe a six. Like you know what I'm saying? I was, I was, um, I didn't. Uh, he fell short in, in certain in certain areas of information that I would wish for him to have, but in the long run, though. In the long run, though, I would say this is that even though he fell short of some of the information, like um, I expected to see the exact uh, report, you know, the the coroner's report uh, reprinted with inside of the book. But I believe the brother, you know, it, you, you might have to pay for that. The brother was putting the book together from just a uh, a formulation of opinion, a formulation of thought. Or different things, and what he, uh, what he came to, or was uh, pushing, what his thought was, was that uh, the general was poisoned, and that he was poisoned with a poison, uh, maybe ricin, which is something that is easily made, and also that is um, 
after a little bit of passing of only a few short hours, you can the the poison will pass through to a point where it's undetectable, and it and it would um, give a lot of the symptoms that uh, the general had fell had succumbed to, i.e. the throwing up, the diarrhea, you know, uh, the 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 fever, the sweat, those things. And, um, you know, he, he spoke on that in the background, dealing with the fact that the wife whose name he did not give, and I, I don't know, I had her name. I don't know when it was. I have to find it. But the wife, um, the wife of uh, Khalid Muhammad, uh, saw Khalid laying on the floor and from what she said was that she felt that he was very tired, overtired, so she allowed him to lay in it lay on the floor um for seven hours while she slept to get ready for work the next morning. She got up that he was there, called the ambulance, and cleaned up in the meantime. The scarring of all type of vital evidence, uh, namely the the uh, rugs inside of the bathroom. You know, we there was no uh, cause of them taking that and doing any type of examination of his stomach contents from there. It was uh, also it was uh, the toxicology report, you know, came back negative. As with a lot of these things, for say when you have something that will give you symptoms that will cause something that was natural, um, you know, the brain aneurysm seems to be a uh, favorite tool or stroke or brain aneurysm, you know, stroke or stroke leading to brain aneurysm, as in uh, as in uh, the late Steve Coakley. Also, as in Sonny uh, 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 Carson, you know, you know these brothers had uh, strokes and, and aneurysms, which took them out. And so, you know, uh, one of the things that he was speaking on was that, you know, Colin did, and I remember Colin making this statement before, which was that as he slipped on a bar of soap, the white man did it. The white man did it, you know. And this is other time. See, like, all right, I really started listening to Khalid Muhammad Nivo really hard, Khalid, maybe about 2003, you understand, about 2003. Before then, I had went away from any type of Islamic things. I liked Khalid, but I hadn't really sat and just you know, went through his lectures one after the, the other to pull the content out. You understand? But um, and you know that was something that I I now um, in hindsight wish that I had done earlier, or maybe stay uh, you know, just yeah, just done earlier. You understand? You know, but and, and all in all. Just 
looking back at the time that that he was taken down, is that um, you know he had moved from Atlanta. I mean, he had moved from Harlem to Atlanta, a place known for racism, moving away from Harlem and Mecca, you know, and the brother just pointed that somebody must have wanted him to move away from where he was more protected in Harlem, more trustworthy people, more politicians and civic leaders who were more in line with his idea uh, and theology and thought on how we should uh, gain our baby for holy age. And we're in Atlanta, which would be the stronghold of a Martin Luther King type of leadership. He would already not only come under the gun of the racism of the racist uh, camel who there, but he would also be under fire from the civic leaders who uh, divvy up the country into territories of a sort in order for them to shake down the people. You know, and so um, this is one of the things that Khaled did. He moved where he wasn't so safe. Another thing that was interesting is that Khaled was. It took two hours to, um, from it took two hours to get Khaled, two hours and a half to get him to stabilize at a hospital. Understand? So it was nine and a half hours of Khaled alive during this time, um, from from his own mouth. With my own ears, I heard automatic state his own self equivocally that Khaled was alive when they were already saying that he was dead and that he did not want to be in the hospital where he was at. And they were taking him further and further away from Atlanta, further into clan country. You understand? And, um, you know, we don't want to be conspiracy theorists, but we are dealing with the same government, you know, that the brother pointed out poignantly that stole the brain from the president so they couldn't have a proper autopsy. So this is what we're dealing with. So, we, you know, that, that was some, some interesting pieces from the book, as I said, that I got from the brother, which was uh, the assassination of Khalid Abdul Muhammad. Black Power out there, family. How y'all doing tonight? You know, we're going to... I hear somebody out there. Are you moving around? Black Power. What's the Black... Oh, Black Power, Grant. All right. But um, like I said, we're going to get it out. I got a couple different works we're going to read from. Just to uh, go over the works of the other elders and some of them a little different. You know, like I said, I'm going to read a little bit from this Making of the White Man. You know, just a couple of little interesting tidbits that were put in here that I happened to just think of when speaking to the family when we was in the chill-out. But the first work that I'm going to read from is uh, Marcus Garvey, a hero, a first biography, Tony Martin. There's a third edition. That's 1987. But um, go to chapter nine, uh, chapter nine, page one hundred, and I'm gonna read from this chapter. And the chapter title is "Enemies Within and Without." By the early 1920s, it was clear to all who had eyes to see that the gov- that the Garvey movement was the biggest and most powerful organization of its kind in history. Others had dreamed before of United Africa's 
to roll over into one vast organization, but none had succeeded the way Marcus had. The UNIA was truly a provisional nation, as Marcus called it. They had a ceremonial head in this potentate, an executive head in Marcus, an industrial sector, the beginnings of an army, a small diplomatic service, ample financial resources, its own media, and a worldwide membership. The one thing it lacked, which every nation needs, was an area of land where where it could set up an independent government. That is why Garvey wanted to move his headquarters to Liberia, the only easily accessible place in Africa at the time. Marcus' very success turned out to be a big turned out to be a big problem for it attracted the hostility of nations, organizations, and individuals who for various reasons felt threatened by success. These include the British, the United States, and the United States government, the communists and the national, and certain black leaders who disagreed with his philosophy, Great Britain. Many millions of the people who Marcus organized influence and struggled for were the colonized subjects of Britain. And it was not in Britain's interest to encourage people who desired to be free of colonialism. Much of the British hostility to the UNIA has already been seen. British governors and their agents banned the Negro world in their African and West Indian colonies, jailed and deported Garveyites, and denied them entry into some countries. Even in independent countries like Costa Rica, South Africa, Panama, Liberia, and the United States, British diplomats spied on the UN. IA and sometimes encouraged the local authorities to move against it. In New York, for example, the British Consul General in 1923 got together with some anti-Garvey West Indians to publish the British West Indian Review. The purpose of this magazine was to counter out Garvey's message and stimulate loyalty to the British king and country. United States. The United States government did not like Garvey's activities either. From as early as 1970, Hold on. From as early as 1917, undercover police began watching his movements. Marcus said that George Tyler, the man who tried to kill him in 1919, announced that he had been sent by Edwin P. Kilroy, an assistant district attorney who had given Marcus some trouble. From 1919, the U.S. officials began looking for a way to deport him, but they needed a suitable pretext, and it was a few more years before they found one. Meanwhile, in 1921, Marcus left the United States for a short tour of the West Indies and Central America. He almost did not make it back, for United States embassies and consulates refused to give him a reentry visa. It was five months before he managed to get back in. He was detained by the immigration authorities when he arrived in New Orleans, but they eventually let him go after he sent telegrams to the United States President and Secretary of State. Marcus and the UNIA were harassed in various other ways. The authorities liked to arrest him every year in the middle of his international conventions. The charges usually came nothing. Liberty halls halls were sometimes raided by police for one reason or another. And on Liberty halls, why I say Liberty halls with a plural is because uh, what happened was every UNIA chapter, no matter where it was at in the country, they named their meeting hall after the first meeting hall that Marcus, after the headquarter meeting hall that Marcus Garvey secured in Harlem, New York. All right. Um, Liberty halls were sometimes raided by police for one reason or another. People were killed during at least one such raid. Some influential North American newspaper 
newspapers were also very hostile to the UNIA and alternated between attacking Marcus and making fun of him. Communists. The earliest communist parties in the the USA were founded in 1919, just as Marcus was taking off into world prominence. Communist parties everywhere have a high priority the championing of the cause of workers and peasants. Those in the United States were no exception. Throughout the 1920s, however, they failed to attract any significant number of black workers and peasants, or any other black persons for that matter. The UNIA, on the other hand, had more black workers and peasants in it than any other political organization in the United States. The communists therefore figured that in order to get to the black masses, they would have to find some way into or around the UNIA. Throughout the 1920s, they refused to leave Garvey alone. UNIA international conventions were always open to fraternal delegates from other other organizations. So in 1921, the colonies dominated African Blood Brotherhood sent some representatives to attend. These black communists then brought in a white woman to address the convention. She told them that Russia, like the UNIA, desired a free Africa. The UNIA, she said, would be welcoming Moscow. She then called on Marcus to come out in support of the communist program, but he politely declined to commit himself. He had no special hostility towards the communist party, and he praised the Russian revolutionary leaders, B.I. Lenin and Leon Trotsky. But he felt strongly that Africans should be a strong, self-reliant force in the world and not merely an appendage to someone else's struggle. Communists believed that class was more important than race. Therefore, Afro-American workers should unite with white workers first rather than with other blacks on the basis of race. Garvey felt that in a racist country, even white workers were so affected with racism that it would be a long time before blacks could meaningfully unite with them merely on the basis of similar class background. He pointed out that most lymph smiles were comprised of white workers. White United States workers at that time also largely prevented black workers from joining their trade unions. The Communist Party of the USA made many other attempts to woo Garvey or entice away his followers. At times, when those attacks fell, they became frustrated and attacked him bitterly. Communist newspapers and magazines, both in the United States and in other countries, were full of such attacks. They liked to call him names like faker and misleader. Communists and Garveyites also fought each other on the streets of Harlem. The struggle between Garveyites and communists reached other countries, too. Since both the UNIA and the Communist International World Communist Movement existed around the globe, in South Africa, Garveyites drove communists out of the leadership of the Industrial and Commercial Workers Union. All right, our next piece is Enemies Within. And uh, let me see right here. Let me get that right. Enemies Within. Marcus was sure that the United States government planted spies in his organization. In addition, there were those who could not resist the temptation to steal. Millions of dollars passed through the UNIA and its subsidiaries like the Black Star Line and the Negro Factory Corporation. Dishonest employees siphoned off some of this money. Several of these employees were brought before the courts by the UNIA, but they were often dealt with leniently, for the courts were not particularly fond of Marcus Garvey. Commenting on the enemies within, Marcus said, in the fight to reach the top, the oppressed have always been encumbered by the traitors of their own race, made up of those little 
made up of those of little faith and those who are generally susceptible to bribery for the selling out of the rights of their own people. There was also the problem of disgruntled former UNIA members and employees who have been expelled from the organization or dismissed from their job for one reason or another. These sometimes tried to sabotage Garvey's efforts. One of the most dangerous was Samuel Augustus Duncan, the United States immigrant from St. Kitts. Duncan had been president of one of the earliest attempts to set up a New York UNIA branch in 1918. He had fallen out with Marcus after the latter's refusal to have the UNIA turned into an auxiliary of a political party. In 1920, Duncan wrote the governors of the British West Indian and African colonies as well as the South African authorities, he told them that the UNIA was not only anti-white and anti-British, but was engaged in the most destructive and pernicious propaganda to create disturbance between white and colored people in the British possessions. Agents, he said, had left the United States to quietly spread Garveyism in the West Indies. Duncan finally suggested that the British authorities should, in the cause of empire, check out very carefully any black persons entering their colonies from the United States or the Panama Canal. Such persons might well be Garveyites. What the, the British, <laughs> the British, The British took Duncan's letters very seriously. Their council general in New York refused passports to all British Indians wishing to visit their homelands unless they first denounced Garvey the South Africans, to place a ban on Afro-Americans and Afro-West Indians wishing to enter that country. And the enemies within, right there. And let me give you his name again. Samuel Augustus Duncan. Uh, we're going to go over here to integrationists. Now, this something that I know a lot of y'all hearts going to be tender about. Let's get on to this integrationist old passage. Like I said, we read in from um, the chapter Enemies Within from Marcus Garvey, Hero of First Biography by Tony Martin. Integrationist. Marcus, in his emphasis on race first, self-reliance and nationhood and his concern for Africa belong to a school of thought which over the years had come to be known as black nationalism. The traditional rivals of the black nationalists, especially in Afro-America, were the integrationists. Afro-American integrationists believed, believed that their destiny was bound up in the United States. Their main goal was to try to win acceptance by white Americans and to enter the mainstream of the United States life, unlike Marcus, who UNIA was restricted to persons of African descent. The integrationists preferred to work and interracial organizations. Unlike Marcus, they were not preoccupied with any thoughts about a black nation in Africa. They wanted to be part of an integrated nation in North America. There were several integrationist organizations, the most powerful of which was the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, also known as Negroes Always Asking Crackers Permission. This was formed in 1909 by liberal white people. Most of its national executive when Marcus arrived in the United States were white. Its major black spokesman 
with w, Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the Afro-Americans most famous scholars. The integrationists were a powerful group. They, they owned many black newspapers and often had the air of influential whites in government, publishing, and other areas. They waged a relentless campaign against Marcus Garvey and the UNIA. They disliked Garvey for the differences in ideology stated above and for other reasons, too. One thing they did not like was his style. He struck them at he struck them as a rabble-rouser, appealing as he did directly to the poor and often less well-educated masses. They were used to quieter, more gentle behavior, and Garvey wore a military uniform and a plumed hat on his parades. They could not stomach that. It seemed to them that the man was making a fool of himself, yet they did not mind when European presidents, governors, and diplomats wore similarly colorful attire. They themselves sported flashy costumes, on the parades for their fraternal organizations and secret societies. More importantly, Garvey's success seemed to show up their own inability to mobilize the mass of Afro-Americans. They could not understand how come a man who had arrived penniless in the United States in 1916 could launch a Black Star Line in 1919, even though he refused to accept money from whites. They had less to show for the white philanthropy they received. They also could not understand how such a man within four short years of his arrival could assemble 25,000 people in Madison Square Garden. Even though some of the integrationists were interested in Africa, that continent was nowhere near the top of their list of priorities. They thought that Marcus was wasting his time to try to establish the UNIA in Africa, for they were optimistic that racial discrimination for the United States would end, would end in another 30 years or so. Uh, 1970. We see how that's going. Marcus, on the other hand, feared that in a century or two, African Americans might be wiped out if they were not careful. Hold on. Let me read that. Let me read that again. Let me read that again for y'all. Let me read that again. All right. Even though some of the integrationists were interested in Africa, that continent was nowhere near the top of their list of priorities. They thought that Marcus was wasting his time to establish the UNIA in Africa, for they were optimistic that racial discrimination in the United States would end in another 50 years or so. Marcus, on the other hand, feared that in a century or two, Afro-Americans might be wiped out if they were not careful. Careful never killed nobody. We need to be careful. We almost a hundred years later, and it looked like we on the verge of a hundred more. Of this shit we got going on looks like we might stop out. I doubt it, Patty. But I'm saying though, just if we just look at it, is you know we gotta we gotta turn it around now. But um, let me let me see. Let me make sure. Let me get this right. Well, let's get here. Uh, two prominent integrationists actually made fun of Marcus because of his color and physical features. W.E.B. Du Bois describes him as a little, fat, black man, ugly, but with intelligent eyes and a big head. Reverend Robert W. Bagnell, a high-ranking black NAACP official, called him a Jamaican Negro of unmixed stock, squat, stocky, fat, and sleek with protruding jaws, heavy jowls, small, bright, pig-like eyes, and a rather bulldog-like face. The integrationist press attacked Marcus bitterly, month in and month out. The Negro, the Negro world replied in equal measure. Garvey's Negro world replied to Dubois, 
insults, for example, was headline W. E. Berghart Dubois as a hater of dark people, calls his own race black and ugly, judging from the white man's stand of the beauty. In 1922, the integrationists launched a fierce campaign entitled Marcus Garvey Must Go. They held public meetings and distributed leaflets denouncing Marcus all over the United States and Canada. In January 1923, eight of their leaders wrote the Attorney General of the United States calling for Garvey's arrest and deportation. Their letter and their campaign generally influenced the government, which was at the time getting ready to prosecute Garvey for alleged mail fraud. Uh, I don't want to read through the whole trial right now. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I I just want y'all to know that at the end, when uh, you know, Marcus was taken to a port in New Orleans and shipped off to Jamaica. Via Panama, 5,000 of his supporters gathered in the rain at the dock on December 2nd, 1927. See him off. Marcus addressed the man from the deck of the Salamaca. He said, I was convicted not because anyone was afforded in a temporary failure of the Black Star Line brought about by others, but because I talked about Africa and about his redemption. He asked his followers to keep the faith and he promised to continue his life was, I live and die for Africa. Redeemed, he said, the greatest work is yet to be done. I shall, with God's help, do it. The crowd saying to you and I him, God bless our president. As the sound like a boy, they lead our way to the United States, which has achieved a glory not often matched, and where his suffering had likely, had likewise been great. Uh, Marcus Garvey never set foot in the United States again. Near as he came to revisit in um, his old ground was in 1937 with his ship. He was traveling from Canada to the West Indies, dropped off, um, stopped at Boston. A, location, a, a delegation of local Garveyites came on board, but he was not permitted to leave the ship. As Marcus Garvey and the enemy within, and what happened to him at the end of the day? He was ended, he ended up shipped off, you know, uh, ran out the country. Uh, supporters followed five thousand, waving them off, you know, uh, very uh, very interesting set up that happened to him, you know, he was uh, put under under the ringer for alleged mail fraud for accepting money, you know, that they said he he wasn't supposed to accept. Uh, Just pure deception and folly. Well, Black Power out there, family, what's going on tonight before they might want to add on anything? Any questions, any comments? about uh, Marcus Garvey.
So, yo, yo, Black Power uh-huh. Man, I'm, I'm uh-huh. just signing in, family. Oh, dear, Paul. No. Yeah, I'm just signing in, family. I ain't, I ain't really heard what you was uh, reading right there. I'm at the slave, you know. Oh, all right. I come really here. I was really working halfway. I have to switch headphones real quick. Let me see here. A little fast. No, I was uh, yeah, I was just uh, glide through a little Marcus Garvey. Another big brother right here. Who was on the line for a second? Shit, I'm out here. Let me, let me open my chat room back up, man. Chat room shut down on Get back in here. Give it in here properly. Excuse me. But, uh, yeah, we in here live, family. Um, I guess I'm opening up the, open my chat room back up. If anybody got anything they want to add on, uh, any Marcus Garvey you had in the house, any, uh, anything that you would say, you know, was a, uh, something that you liked about Marcus Garvey, a favorite that you think family should uh, look into, I say uh, definitely look again. I mean, you know, all of his writing, you know, even the poetry of Marcus Garvey, of uh, even the poetry. I have to go find that. I have to, uh, I'm going to go find more poetry of Marcus Garvey. Throw that in there for the family so y'all can listen to that right there. That would be definitely uh, uh, it's, it's a wonderful thing. Well, good thing, good thing. Uh, Black Power, what's going on, brother Rahimo? Brother Rahimo, can you hear me? Is it my thing? Or is it? Can somebody say something on the line so I can make sure that? I can hear that. Okay. Um, yo, yo, yo. All right, all right, all right. I just want to make sure. All right, well, uh, anyway, I'm going to go into uh, Amos Wilson. You know what I mean? You know. Black Power family, I had uh, muted my line. I had to open my line. Look, all right, I was just thinking, I just didn't know if, I, if, if y'all can hear me or not, or if something was wrong with my mic and I couldn't hear y'all talking. No, I can hear you. I heard you read uh, quite a bit, actually. So. All right. You want to add on anything? I want, you know, uh, I had anything you uh, want me to reread or something to go back over or something? Uh, nah. Uh, you want uh-huh. to find something? Just, you know, keep, keep the flow going. I'll wait till it uh, come around to me and shit. All right, all right. Uh, okay. I'm about to drop this uh, Amos Wilson real quick. This is Amos Wilson. This is from the uh, Blueprint for Black Power, a moral, political, and economic imperative for the 21st century. Amos 
Uh, Dr. Emerson Wilson. Um, this one right here, mine was published nineteen ninety eight. Uh, no, this mine was third print. It was the first print with nineteen ninety eight. Oh man! Oh, here we go. Almost okay. And we back at um, Africa Agnosticis. Agnosticis. And on uh, this page, three ninety three reasons for optimism. Um, despite this apparent doom and gloom, Africa's destiny is far from hopeless. Generalizations about this huge continent are just that, generalizations. Examples with economic growth, political stability, social and technological development are present and increasing in some African nations. It must be kept in mind that Africa is the world's second largest continent, consisting of 53 countries and encompasses a broad array and assortment of social systems, human and material resources and cultures. A number of these nations are not only characterized by political and financial stability, but also present great promise and opportunity present great promise and opportunity for intrepid investors as several African nations expand into new business mining and manufacturing areas. They are experiencing unprecedented economic growth. There are a number of stock markets open to foreign investors in such countries as Botswana, Ivory Coast, Ghana, Kenya, Mauritius, Morocco, Nigeria, Tunisia, and Zimbabwe. In fact, Botswana, along with Mauritius and South Africa, were given high ranking, high ratings for credit worthiness by Institutional Investors Magazine in March 1993. Listed as Africa's poorest, as Africa's poorest country by the World Bank in 1967, but Wallace's economy grew at a phenomenal 13.8% a year between 1971 and 1987. One of the best-managed countries in Africa is now a balance of trade, so and budget surplus is one of the few developing nations that has never restructured or defaulted on its debt as of uh, 1993. Uh, Mauritius is an island of southwestern Africa have an economy which has been growing at 6.6% a year since 1985. Once primarily a sugar-producing country, Mauritius is increasingly expanding its economy to include textile manufacturing and tourism. Zambia, Morocco, Tunisia, Zimbabwe, and Ghana are also receiving increasing favorable notice from investors. According According to Fortune magazine, Ghana's entered stock market has already doubled in price since opening to foreigners in 1993. Fortune further noticed that Miles Moore, the CEO of Blakeney Management in London, asserted that Ghana is a well-governed country with a very promising future. Moore estimated that Ghana's 5.3 billion GDP growth to my domestic product will rise 5% in 1994. Morgan Stanley Africa Investment Fund sells on the New York Stock Exchange for a discount of 12%. A manager at Morgan Stanley contends that countries like Zimbabwe, Botswana, and Ghana are doing all the right things to get their economies on track. Hold on. Get back now. 
responsibility of the African American community for Africa's economic development. The ignoring of Africa by the Western nations provides windows of opportunity open to Native Africans to drastically reduce the massive outflow of flight of capital, which has been estimated to exceed 80% of the gross domestic product and to reinvest it in its own country. African peoples and nations across the diaspora must prize themselves of a full ongoing knowledge of the social, economic, and cultural history of African nations, as well as their contemporary status and reorganize their social, cultural, and economic structures as to initiate and fuel continental Africa's growth and development. The African-American educational orientation towards the knowledge of the motherland it must realize that its own economic structures it must realize that its own economic salvation is coterminous with or tied to that of Africa. It must invest money and human resources in Africa's development and perceive its economic prosperity as its special responsibility and mission. The African American community must no longer must no longer be afraid to be constructively critical of tyrannous, oppressive, corrupt, and inept governments in Africa and across the diaspora. Such regimes are a threat to the vitality and survivability of the whole pan-African community. The African-American community must become vigilantly and justly interested in U.S. and European policies towards Africa and seek to influence those policies in both its own and in Africa's favor while being constructively critical of air, Africa's governments are actively opposed to these which are repressive. The African American community must cooperate with African nations and peoples by providing and attracting market, markedly increased investments in their economy, by providing and brokering finance for the development of small business, enterprises, and manufacturing establishments, which can greatly reduce unemployment by supporting privatization programs where appropriate and by fostering the full development of capital markets, i.e. markets where economic growth may be added and accelerated to purchase based interest and equity securities by U.S. investors, particularly African-American investors themselves. African Americans, as well as continental African business school graduates and economic professors, should be trained in the knowledge and expertise regarding various financial sectors of Africa, regulatory reform, the liberalizing of interest rates, institution building, and reform the development of appropriate technologies, the restructuring of banks and financial institutions, and prudential regulation of banking, financial and economic systems, which will help the Pan-African community to realize and abundantly enjoy the wealth with which has been so naturally blessed. The rapid expansion of the African diaspora nations and communities and African-Americans Rapid, rapid expansion. 
the rapid expansion of the African diaspora.
Let's see here. We got last section. I'm on uh, page 396. Amos Wilson, Blueprint for Black Power, African Agnostic. In order to help create a favorable investment client in African diaspora and nations and community, the African-American community must create its own stable and productive investment infrastructure. Moreover, it's most important, it must appropriately organize its political economy and political systems so that it may influentially interact with diaspora nation, nations and communities. The major political objective of these national initiatives on the part of the African-American community is the political stability of diaspora communities without without which social and economic health both at home and abroad is impossible. The economic objective of these initiatives includes the creation and expansion of productive capital markets, i.e. stock and bond markets, domestic banks that can lend and invest in their local economies, trading companies, alliances, joint ventures, subcontractors and the elimination of a significant reduction of barriers to as well as the construction of channels for the confident investment of African-American money and African-American broker investments and enterprises and basic infrastructure facilities in Africa and other African diaspora communities. If these ends are to be achieved, it will be necessary that the African-American community so develop its economic and political clout within the U.S. and develop such political, cultural, and economic ties with the other diaspora communities that it can measurably help them to achieve three major goals necessary to it and their economic prosperity, growing economy, stable currency, responsive and responsible social and political institutions. All of these ends are to be, are to be pursued in the hope that increasing African-American investment as well as domestic investment will lead to increased diaspora and trade with the African-American community and increasing employment both within that community and other African communities across the globe. We do not deceive ourselves about the African-American community's economic and political capacity to finance and undertake the projects we have just cited. The costs of such undertakings are enormous. It cannot be borne by the African-American community alone. However, we do think that the African-American community has the ability to achieve high levels of social, political organization and economic growth along with them, high levels of black power within the U.S. We believe that it can exercise such power in the U.S. and thereby in the world that it will be able in partnership with the rest of the diaspora community to move the international community to invest in African people so as to help them become prosperous and influential members of the world, community, and nation. Beautiful day, Black Power. That's uh, that is our brother. Uh, uh, that's our brother, Dr. Amos Wilson. Blueprint for Black Power. The tour of the read that I had. So everybody on the line, go please go into your your bag. You know, go in your bag and uh, snatch up. You know, snatch up something good that you like. Snatch up not your bag. Yeah, come on in with it. Uh, Brother Brian, hey, who, you got something to throw in? Or you want to say something about uh, Dr. Amos Wilson? Hello? Hello? Yes, I just joined. 
Uh, all right. Uh, well, um, tonight, Think Tank Thursday, it's, uh, we're doing Food for Thought, putting out our uh, favorite books and reading passages from some of our favorite books to uh, educate the rest of the you know, community on things that we like. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, Brother Vahey that's you? I don't know you out there. Yeah, they're for the exam. They're for the exam. Yeah, I'm in my line. Uh, I'm in my line off, so you got to give me a few uh, seconds uh, to respond to you. Oh, hold on, brother. Hey, well, I, I, I didn't even hear you. My my line, my uh, mic jumped out for a second. Now, you said you were going to do what? I uh, said I'll be having, I'll be cutting my line off on my on my end. So when you be calling me, it takes me a few seconds. You know what I'm saying? I unlock my line. Oh, okay, okay. But um, let me go through my books real quick. I'm gonna pull up some, let somebody go before me, so that I can get myself situated, family. All right, yo. It was something else I wanted to, I wanted to go into because I had a, I just uh. Got this book by the brother Foy Williams, and it came in. And I wonder, I wanted to read a little piece out of it. Really good book, but um, we went over it pretty well. But I wanted to read something out of it. But I have to, have to pick that back up. But talking about the uh, speaking on the book earlier, um, the fascination of. Uh, Colin Muhammad by uh is Jimmy Riley is his uh, brother's name. Yeah, uh put it out. And um we wanna let me see here. We wanna go to I didn't put no highlights in the book. It was my first time reading. So I, didn't, I just read directly through the book. But uh, he, he made a couple, he, he made a couple of very interesting, point of interesting things. All right. Uh, there we go. On On the night of February 12th, according to reports, Dr. Collins began to show signs of distress and lost control of his bodily functions, where he sorted himself in the bathroom. As he attempted to walk, he became so disoriented that he had problems maintaining his balance, stumbling and vomiting, defecating on himself. Still, he was not to get any help until almost seven hours later. Even when he fell to the floor of the bathroom and couldn't respond to questions, it was then determined that he was tired. Instead of first aid or calling 911, he was given a pillow, which was placed under his head. His companion then returned to the bedroom and slept for six hours while his dignified proud man was left on the floor in his condition. Obviously, an impossible, life-threatening situation. Earlier that day, according to reports, he had food at a local Chinese restaurant. 
had the meal from the restaurant been contaminated, his reaction would have been sooner. As a past victim of food poison, I can tell you that it, it gave me severe stomach pains, diarrhea, and violent vomiting. Gastronitis was my diagnosis at the hospital when I went three days later. I was embarrassed and treated myself at home until I finally, could finally get to a doctor. A bad food will not give you a stroke. Brain damage or set off hypertension causing the reaction of the poorly attributed to Dr. Khaled Abdul Muhammad. The symptoms of poisoning are clearly present. Either he was injected, fed, or inhaled the toxin, but he was poisoned. The fact that he was never allowed to get medical attention for more than several hours later demonstrates that, however, it was introduced into his system. A deliberate time lapse allowed the toxin to take effect and do its job. I also believe that there were more than two people present at the time. Uh, there is absolutely no antidote for ricin. And why was another minister, another minister and friend called before the authorities were notified? It was this other minister who instructed her to call 911 to get help. He was then transported to Douglas Hospital in Douglasville, Georgia. He took ill at 12 a.m. Following to remain uh, hold up. He took ill at 12 a.m., allowed to remain in danger until 7 a.m., seven four hours before he was picked up and another two hours to travel to a hospital. What happened in that ambulance? He reached the hospital by 9 a.m., a total of nine hours after he first became sick. After one to two hours, ricin, as it was used, would disappear completely, leaving no trace, no matter how many tests are done by the provision experts. And they can be trusted to truly look for residuals. If they were part of a conspiracy, you can forget about it, especially when there is a cover-up as is believed. Any damages or injuries, as well as death, would easily be attributed to documented health problems and dismissed as natural causes, which was, which was not the case. It was unnatural causes made to look like death due to hypertension and other documented health problems. Mr. Harold Van Moore, the person most probably known as Dr. Khaled Abdul Muhammad, was assassinated. And the cause of his death was expertly covered up by the very people who took his life. And then, you know, the brother going on saying that, you know, he's like, this is purely my opinion. I honestly believe that since his death was deliberately and purposefully minimized to downplay the fact that there was an assassination in order to influence the community to lose interest in the case and not push for in-depth investigation to probable, probable causes other than what was in the medical reports on record. Remarkably, he did not die right away. There was information from a reliable source that he was fed cookies right before he began to show signs of distress. After he was admitted into the hospital, they immediately began treatment. Records show at 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. to allegedly stabilize his blood pressure. Brain scans, among other standard tests, were conducted. Again, he was in danger but still very much alive, as was evidenced by friends who were allowed to visit him while he was under treatment at Douglas by 1 p.m., his family was informed that Khaled had suffered a stroke and his condition was so severe that his chances of recovery were zero, but he needed to be transferred at once to a better neurological facility. A few moments later, he was prepared and transported to Kennestone Hospital in Mariella, Georgia, moving him still further away from Panther headquarters, and at that point, it was alleged that a blood vessel had ruptured deep in his brain. The public was told that he was dead, then later near death, all force reports circulated days before he was dead. By 3.30 p.m., the Atlanta chapter of the Panthers had the area under heavy security. 
on February 13th at 3 p.m. It was then reported that he had suffered a cerebral hemorrhage and could not survive. A reliable source has it that a rug from the bathroom of Dr. Collins' home saturated with his body fluids was secured. Tests on it should have been done immediately. Never and never left the sight of the campus security team. Contained in the rug samples, uh, contained in the rug are samples of his stomach contents, which would yield a valuable evidence of any toxic compounds then present in his system. Um, his his close family member who was present when he fell ill, his his wife. Uh, when he fell ill, was irreconcilable, yet composed herself to remarry soon after. With her track record, her new spouse needs a lot of prayer. Uh, his home and art collection in Harlem was sold to a Harlem store owner who then turned it over to a white man whom he obviously fretted for. Considering of all the things that have been going on in the black community for time, America was founded that should not come as a surprise. News reporters Showing him he was given information regarding the condition of Dr. Collins, whom he hated with a passion. How did he get the information is beyond reality. When he made his report, he, as usual, put his own perverted spin on the story. Um, Dr. Collins' uh, family member says she cleaned up the house due to nervous energy, but failed to clean and bathe her companion in his time of distress. The so called burst of nervous energy destroyed critical, important evidence. She cleaned up the crime scene, and it was deliberate. Sometime around February 17, 2001, on a Saturday in the early afternoon, it was decided by the family of Dr. Collins at the advice of his doctor, Dr. Omar Jimenez, to pull the plug. At a press conference, the public was told that he died of natural causes. He was then moved to Cobb County when an autopsy was performed. Followers of Dr. Collins was not prepared for such an event and acted without wisdom or experience. They were all in shock, and that is normal. No more panic. They were just confused at the point. But soon as the violent leaders of the organization began to restore order, they fell in place as they should. Um, as they should, black people are well organized, but the enemy is evil, and we are not. So we don't continually harbor thoughts of murder and attacking innocent people. We are a peaceful people, but we are also warriors. Once sleeping lions, but now awake and alert. We know that we are under attack. So uh, they did, and then now that happened. Got it passed on February 17. I say uh, they didn't do a toxicology report to February 23rd. Then I believe they did a second one May in May sometime. For everything you know, pops up negative, negative, negative. Nothing shows anything. Um, and at this point, the brother said he was. Uh, so it, and one of the things that's interesting is that since the command had uh, passed along the video of Bollomatic uh, speaking with the uh, new new uh, commission leader of the Black Panther Party or the, uh, the head spokesman at that point in time uh, at the Slave Theater in regards to the context of Khaled, uh being assassinated, and he pretty much dismissed a lot of the claims of the people in the audience the brother said, uh, Jimmy Rodgers said he was happened to be there and happened to be one of the ones who stood and made claim of it being some type of poison. And the brother uh, said, and the brother was on more of the lines that, oh, well, you know, they can't hold blood that long and, you know, because nothing like that happened. 
But uh, man, listen, we done with the beat. So you, you you can't put nothing past the beat. But that's what I wanted to read from uh, Dr. Collard, assassin from Dr. Collard, doing Muhammad. That's how. Brother Ryan, here you You ready? Oh, but the line is open. Anybody who on the line, if you would like to uh, get in, if you have uh, a book you thought that you know people should be interested in that you you know you read before, thought was very interesting, you want to pass that on to the people, uh, please do. Tonight is the night for you to do that. Who wrote that Dr. Khaled book? Um, Jimmy Riley. Jimmy Riley? Yeah, So, so what's, what's his ordeal? Why he writing a book? Like, was he there? Was he around? What's up with him? Nah, he, uh, he actually was a brother who grew up in Harlem, you know what I'm saying? Had, uh, had the friend in college, I mean, college, spoke to him several times, was a gentleman uh, 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 lived up there and just moved around. You know how. You know how they got, like, uh, the conscious community? You know what I'm saying? And he was just somebody who was part of the community who never felt like what happened with Kali was really, like, the story of a brain aneurysm or a stroke and aneurysm just did not hold up. So he just looked into it and then wrote a book from his own opinion, how he felt about how it could have went down, certain things that went on, Types of poisons that, or types of poison that could be used, uh, not detected. Uh, also, um, you know, just the different symptoms they probably had and how they lined up with a poisoning, not a stroke. Uh, you know, the inconsistency. Why would you, you know, why would you let Kylie sit on the floor? You gonna let Kylie lay on the floor in the feces, and you gonna go get in the bed? Go to sleep. Six hours. You go to sleep for six hours. Wake up. He's still down, unresponsive. You don't call the ambulance. You call somebody else, huh? Yeah, that's what's up. I was just trying to see what, like how the brother gathered his information as well. Yeah. So that's the route he on. So he just. You know, he just put together the information and he's saying just, you know, some of that common sense, you know what I mean? You know, the thing we be talking about, you know, sometimes we got to use the common sense. Say, well, how big can I have some hard now? Some things just don't seem right. Especially a stroke, Colin went not that at all. You know, people try to say, oh, Colin wouldn't take his medicine and he was stubborn and all that. Come on, man. Colin was not trying to die. You understand? So people, you know, they're trying to push this thing, and it really is much like the only person I really is saying that Khaled was assassinated or murdered was uh, on Maddox, and he's still on that now. You know, everybody else keep talking. It was something else, something else. 
something else. But well, all Maddox was there. They said he was alive and that he, he wanted to get out of there. So, that's that right there. My power family. What about? Uh, Marie from the Pyramid Text. Um, Pyramid Text got a lot of spells in it, a lot of some information. So, I'm going to just uh, basically cut through the, uh, the Pyramid Text study. Uh, Pyramid Text study first king of the Sixth Dynasty. Uh, from 2323 to 2291 BCE. It's similar in size of outer units, but its pyramid texts are both more extensive and less well-preserved. Six of the 14 inscribed walls and the, and the substructure have been destroyed. These include the north and south walls of the burial chamber and the antechamber. now exist mostly as just disjointed fragments and the walls of the entrance corridor which seems to have disappeared completely. The fragments have been recovered by a series of French expeditions in the last century, but most of them remain unpublished. As a result, the spells that were once inscribed on the destroyed walls and their order can be understood as present only approximately the sequences presented here are based on fragments and references that have appeared in print to date but these will undoubtedly require revision once the walls of the substructure have been fully reassembled and published. Betty's Pyramid is the first to use the monogram for the DD slash MDW recitation at the top of each column, as well as at the beginning of spells a practice copied by Pepe II and Neith. Like that of Eunice, the west wall of his burial chamber is inscribed only on its gobble. Its spells, however, are concerned with commending the king's body to nut rather than with protecting it in a sarcophagus. These are complemented by a unique series of spells on the interior walls and lid of the sarcophagus itself. Together, the two sequences anticipate the uh-huh. theme of the burial chamber's west end and later pyramids. Uh-huh. Most of the offering ritual was inscribed on the north wall of the burial chamber and several registers. As in Eunice's pyramids, this wall is too small to accommodate the entire ritual, which continues on the north end of the east wall, spells 110 to 139. The invocation of the offering ritual spell 140 was on the north wall and perhaps also its concluding spells. The remainder of the east wall contains the end of the insignia ritual spells, 141 through 147, and its gobble is inscribed with personal spells for the spirit. Control of sustenance spells, 148 through 167, as in Eunice's pyramid, the south wall of the burial chamber was dedicated entirely to Eunice's resurrection ritual spells, 168 through 180, with a unique short spell between its 10th and 11th spells. The passage from the burial chamber to the antique chamber is linked with personal spells for the spirit's passage from dust from the duat to the aket. And for access to the gate between the two regions, spells 181 and 188 in the antex chamber itself, the west and east walls are inscribed continuously from top to bottom rather than in two separate sections, the goblin wall. The west wall begins with a series of personal spells for entrance to the aket identical 
to similar, identical to text, similar on the West Bible and the wall in the Genesis Pyramid, spells 189 to 195. The remainder of the wall is described with new text addressed to the deceased king and encouraging his spirit to enter the to the destroyed south wall of the antics chamber can be assigned three groups of published fragments, three individual spells noted in a, in a preliminary publication is all concerned with the spirit's passage through the Akhet. The first of these groups from the beginning of the wall opens with spell 206, which concludes the series begun on the west wall, five personal spells follow, including three from the south wall of Eunice's antique chamber. The second group of fragments from the middle of the wall contains another five spells, of which two are addressed to the king to this section, also belonging to unpublished spells whose order and exact position are uncertain. The wall ends with a short text announcing the king's arrival at the eastern end of the Akhet spell, the passage leading it to Seti Sardab, containing spells of the morning ritual spells is one of only two such passages from the Old Kingdom pyramids that were inscribed or whose inscriptions have survived the antique chamber's east wall is covered with spells to protect the spirits of birth from the Akhet. And ensures control of sustenance, a number of which also appears on the East Gobble and Wall of Eunice's Antics Chamber. Six groups of fragments and three unpublished spells can be assigned to the destroyed North Wall. Only the position of the first and last of these spells are certain. All of the spells are of the personal kind intended to assure the spirits welcomed by the gods as it is approached. Excuse me, the sky. As it is approached to the sky, the wall ends with an injunction to Horus to allow the spirit to pass through the door leading to the sky. No fragments have yet been assigned with certainty. Two are spells noted for the walls of the southern end of the corridor, the last section of the substructure that has been inscribed. Spells for entering the womb of Nut. Spells on the sarcophagus. Recitation by Nut. Teddy, I have given you your sister Isis that she may take hold of you and give you your heart for your body. I have given you your sister, Nathis, that she may take hold of you and give you your heart for your body. Sadi, my son, is the one I have desired. I have given him the Akhet that he may take control of it as Horus of the Akhet. It is proper. Sadi is the one you have desired from among your children. Escort him forever. Sadi is my son of my heart. I have given him the duat that he may become foremost in it as Horus, foremost of the duat. All the gods are saying his father Shu knows that you love Sadi more than your mother Tefnut. Sadi is my son whom I caused to be born and who caught it my belly. He is the one I have desired and with whom I have become content. Sadi is the son of my body. Seti is my son, whom I have desired the firstborn on Jeb's throne. He has become content with him and has given him his, inher- his inheritance before the big he need. All the gods are in a razzle saying how happy is Seti that his father Jeb is content with him. Sky open, earth open the door to Horus. You of the enclosure will pull open the door to Seth. You, you water lilies and capsize to him as the one at the floor of his toppled wall for Seti has passed by you as a tomb. Seti is apparent in heat in the midst of the Nigal. Seti has become clean in the lake of reeds. Horus is scrubbing your flesh. Thoth is scrubbing your feet. Seti shrew carry Seti above nut. Give your arm to Seti. Doorkeeper of Horus and gatekeeper of Osiris, please tell the identity of Seti in this manner to Horus. He has come with a hair spit. 
for that hair of his that becomes ill at the beginning of the month and bald at the mid-months. You should soothe it, they say, with the magic that is in the gods when he first comes into being. Greetings beseech. She the hippopotamus, hide you, come against Seti as the beseech. She the hippopotamus, he would have wretched away one of horse two scepters from you and stuck and struck you with it. Greetings as he first comes into being, she says, greetings, monstrous she-donkey, have you come against Seti as a monstrous she-donkey, she would have struck you with the tail that grows in the lake of the Cyrus. Greetings to Kanum, who is constrained to build Seti, you are that plant of his that his foot steps on and cannot grow back between his toes. You are you are one of the two pillars of the big enclosure, he says. The sky's doorways has been opened. The cool water's doors has been pulled open for Horus of the gods at daybreak that he might emerge into the marsh of reeds and become clean in the marsh of reeds. The sky's doorways is open. The cool water's doors has been pulled open for Horus and the Aket at daybreak that he might emerge into the marsh of reeds and become clean in the marsh of reeds. The sky's doorways has been open. The cool water's doors has been pulled open for eastern Horus at daybreak that he might emerge into the marsh of reeds and become clean in the marsh of reeds. The sky's doorways has been opened. The cool water's doors has been pulled open for Horus of Shizmet. At daybreak, that he might emerge into the marsh of reeds and become clean in the marsh of reeds. The sky's doorways has been opened. The cool water's doors has been pulled open for Seti himself. At daybreak, that he might emerge into the marsh of reeds and become clean in the marsh of reeds. So Seti will become clean, receive his metal bones, and extend to himself his imperishable limbs that are in the belly of his mother nut. Son, give your arms to Seti. Shu shall take him to be a companion of Shu, for Seti has been suckled with the milk of the two black cows who are the nurses of the bass of the Helopolis. The, the sky's belly is swollen with the fourth of the God's seeds that is in it. Behold, Seti, Seti is the God's seed that is in it. Seti has become clean and received his God's cloak. Seti will establish himself through it like them as a God. Seti settle with him as one of you. You can now swim off horse a black front who is on the side's neck. You are for the sky, and Seti is for the sky. Re- recitation horse fetcher desires Seti because he has gotten his eye. Seth fetches desire Seti because he has gotten his testicles. Thoughts fetcher desire Seti, the two Enids have shaken with fear for them, for they are the very fetchers who desire Seti, the fetchers to peace, and they shall fetch Seti to peace. Seti is a snake with sweeping visage and continually lifted from a star to whom the gods bow, and two Enids shake Seti's hand is what will elevate him. Seti is a snake with sweeping visage and continually lifted from Continually lifted front a star to whom the gods bow and to Enid's shape. The face of Seti is a face that sees his elevation. Seti is a breathing nose. Seti will go forth to the sky on the cushion and the prow of the standard. Its sandal has been gasped by the elevated hand. Seti will go forth to the sky on the cushion that is in the prow. Its sandal has been gasped. Seti is a breathing nose. The faith of Seti is a face that sees his elevation. Seti is the one who emerged from the cold, from the coiled one. Seti has emerged on his fiery blast while he has turned away. The two skies have gone to Seti. The two lines have come to Seti. Seti has stepped on the green vine under Jeb's feet, and he will trample nuts past. Seti has become clean on the hill of the land on which the sun has become clean. He shall set the step ladder and erect the ladder while those of the west are gasping his arms. 
Greeting son who travels the skies and crosses night. You have traveled the winding canal, and Seti has mastered itself. For Seti is a god, a god's son. Seti is the blossom that emerged as Ka, the, gli- the glided blossom that emerged in the Isum. Seti has traveled pay and crossed the, kan- the, the Kanmut. Seti has traveled pay as the as the Kereti foremost of Muzat. He has crossed the Kanmut as Shizmu in his oil press boat for the God desires that Seti live more than that of the Fetek live. Uh, how beautiful is the sight of Seti with Handan from the sun's brow, his kills on him from Hathor, his plumage, a falcon's plumage, as he goes forth to the sky amongst his brothers, the gods. Greetings, longhorned bull of the bulls, as you make emergence. Seti will grasp you by your tail, and Seti will grab you at the coxes as you make emergence with the great goddess behind you and a great goddess before you. Greetings, greatest of the gods, receive Seti to yourself. He belongs to you. Be informed as to the parts of Seti's corpse. They are those of a child. The sky shall speak, the earth shall shake. That's your ferocity. Osiris, as you make emergence, You're, you know cows who are there. You nurse cows who are there. Go around him, be well him, be your breast for him. Mourn him as he makes emergence and goes to the sky amongst his brothers, the gods. I'm going to end off on that. There's a, I'll be sitting here reading the shit, blah, blah. But anyway, uh, like most of you, I didn't go to a favorite book. I just uh, selected a book and just opened it, and whatever page that I landed on, I just decided to add the material uh, to the family or whatnot. But from the material that I read, um, it might be kind of offset from what everybody else is going in on, but I think that it's something that we all do think about is that when we enter our final stage and we're entering death, uh, what is the trials and tribulations that we have been told from brainwashing that we have to go through. And I think that is best that for us to get a proper understanding and grounding of that is to look to our ancestors, who was the first to put, you know, this passage that we go through of entering a spiritual realm after death, that they would be the ones to best have the, 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 the founding information that you would be able to look at, study, and even do your research and come back with a more solid perspective of what happens, you know what I'm saying, to the car and death. So that's what I take from that passage out of the excuse me, out of the pyramid text. Now other people may, you know, grasp may grasp information differently, excuse me, or your mind might process information differently. So you might have a different outlook or opinion or you might see it or you might see it or view it as information that was pointless or whatnot, but I'm just going to ask the family on the line, you know, from what you heard or if you've read that yourself, uh, how did you process that information? Like, what, what is the final outcome that you came up with from the information from the pyramid text when you came across this, this uh, teachings? Yeah, yeah, I heard you read it, brother. Hey, Rube, but I'm I'm up in the world. I couldn't really uh, get right on that to speak on nothing. But I am familiar with the Duat and, um, you know, the, um, 
proceedings we're going to have to go through on the afterlife, according to our ancestors, that is. And for me, like I said before, I think it's important to deal with that information. You know, when I study group, uh, we'll be able to deal with that, you know, that, that work right there at a later given time. But for those that are still holding on to the white man's religion, you know what I'm saying, uh, as we come to you and we give you the knowledge to free yourself from the chains of uh mental side due to the fact that you're following a Euro a European uh religion, when we bring to you the works and the spiritual practices and teachings of our ancestors which came I would say millions of years before man even gave you a book and gave you a religion, it's important for you to see, you know what I'm saying, the creation, the original creation story and, you know, the the final uh celestial return for when we do leave this earth. So I just wanted to go over that. If family want to go over that, we can. If not, we can save it for later or another time, or we can go on for the next individual. All right, that was, that was a good piece of literature. I missed a, a, skipped a little beat on it. Skipped a little beat. I just had a, a emergency thing going on in the background. But um, now that that you know that um, when when reading any uh anything. You know, from the seven writings of the uh, Nessus, you know what I'm saying? It's uh, a, a lot of times you we have the, you know, you get the the one layer of meaning, and then you have the two and three fold that you have to look into. And so that you know, anytime that you're reading something like that, it, it, it's a course of study. It's a course of study. So um, checking everything out because you know because of the language that that is written in because it's written in English, you know, sometimes it moves a little bit of the context in translation. So it takes uh, realigning oneself with the African spirit, with the African culture, so you can, you know, pretty much get the uh, understanding of what these things are more or so of just hearing it and just that initial thought from the definition that's normally given. you got to get a mind sight on these things that come from a well-rounded African perspective. Agreed. Um, I said that they may want to read this passage of this um, medicine uh, in and of You know, I got uh, several things here that I can just grab and just open and just, you know, go through like that and just add to the flow if y'all don't mind, you know what I'm saying? But I do know that I kind of do have that dragging voice that kind of, you know, after a certain period of time becomes one that is tiring, kind of like a teacher giving a lecture and you fall asleep in his classroom, so. You know, uh, I'll just break it up as it goes around. You know what I'm saying? Nah, no doubt. You know, the queen says she likes your voice. She says she likes to hear her hey, root talk. Okay, I appreciate that. <laughs> I can't say that I agree, but I appreciate it. It's all uh, good, though. Well, no, no doubt. I do. 
I do have the book that you already read out of right now. I have the blueprint for Black Power that Amos Wilson. So I'm going to let somebody else go when they come back around to me. Then I'll go through a, a passage that I feel that should be applied to everyday life out of the blueprint. So I'll just wait till they come back around to me. I'm messing around. Right. I'm looking for my... This book by the brother Floyd. Uh, so many, so many books around. It'd be hard to find the one that you're looking for. Like when you're looking for it, that's what I'm gonna do real quick. Right, while you looking for that, uh, I'll just go into it. It's short. It's not that long. So, all right, here, go, go ahead, hit that, yeah. hit that real fast, and I'll grab this book. Of the blueprint of black, uh, the blueprint for black power, Dr. Amos Wilson says, uh, page two hundred six. Uh, the uh, the chapter is the policy formation process. Says so if black power is our goal, we must develop and use intimate and expert knowledge of the nature and organization of white power, and of the white American nation. We should study its class interests, structure, its policies, formation, and execution networks, and its governmental structures and operations in terms of how they may be counterbalanced by an equivalent African-American-based political economic structures. Policy formation, execution networks, governing, governing structures and operations. This implies the development of a black nation within a nation which would fund, organize, and operate its own proper networks in order to penetrate favorably the influence or counter those of the white elite. The need for the full economic development of the African-American community, the need for its material enrichment and heavy penetration of the now white American economic system should, should by now be quite clear, for it is clear that given the current design and functional operation of a white American nation, its governmental operations and outcomes can only be influenced in favor of black Americans. Though the through the solid, appropriately structured social and political organizations and the purpose for creation and use of wealth by the black community, <clears throat> Black institutions charted by the white elite, funded and influenced in their composition and direction by that elite, for those very reasons, cannot operate freely and fully in the interests of the African-American community and in the interests of the worldwide African community. There is a severe need for the African-American and pan-African communities to develop an African-funded special interest and policy formation of institutions as well as several world-class universities and research institutions. We must recognize that the major function of education involves securing the survival of a people, advancing their interests, enhancing their quality of life. Education, educational establishments are as much a part of the defense establishment of a people as in their army. A people befret of educational institutions dedicated and designed to defend their interests and to solve their problems are essentially, are essentially a defenseless people, a people vulnerable to the exploitation of other people as well as vulnerable to annihilation. We cannot advance or appropriately defend our interests and lives as an African people if we place the fate of our community in the hands 
of the educational establishment of our oppressors and enemies and in the hands of those African educated, excuse me, says that, uh, I'm going to have to read that again. If we place the fate of our community in the hands of the educational establishment of our oppressors and enemies and in the hands of those Africans educated in them, African people and African leaders should be the recipients of an African-centered education. No African should be granted leadership in the African community who has not been certified through education or experience as African-centered in consciousness, identity, and orientation. In the absence of such institutions today, it is incumbent on the so-called predominantly black colleges and universities and that black and African study programs in these and the predominantly white institutions to develop teaching, training, and research departments in all areas vital to African communal interests. Intense, edu- intense education and research must not only occur in the areas of history, culture, political science, and victimology, totaling all the elements of black suffering followed by white establishment dictated or defined recommendations. Every department in the predominantly black colleges and universities should require all their students to attend courses taught from an African-centered perspective and designed to achieve African-centered ends. This includes business, economics, the social and physical sciences, for example. Black students should not only be taught business administration courses, which only prepare them for work and servitude and cracker-owned businesses, they should also be taught the development and administration of black-owned business. How to develop and execute businesses and economic strategies in the interest of the black community's control of its own markets. To run specific types of businesses, to finance businesses from within the black community to solve business and economical problems, facing the black community to penetrate the cracker business world as entrepreneurs. To gain control of cracker markets and businesses, to engage and import export businesses, to compete as international business persons heading to a multinational black-owned corporations and the like. In the physical science, in the physical sciences, black students should be instructed in the politics of science and sociology of science. An example: what social, political, economical, cultural formations are con- are conducive to the creation and to the continuing development of science and technology, what are the scientific and and technological issues and needs in African communities, how trained African scientists and technicians can can profitably work in the interests of African people, etc. Black universities and think tanks must increase their African-centered research their consultancy relationships with the black community and fully engage themselves with black community development on all levels and in all areas. For all African-American control institutions must come to the realization that their primary reason for being is the protection and betterment of all African people. That's the end on that. I'll say I find that to be uh, very important due to the fact that uh, he makes a key point on, you know, those that are in the African community that are calling themselves teachers or scholars, if they resume don't add up, you know, to them being just that, then that's not the person you should really be seeking or studying under or following information from. 
as far as building uh, in the community and building with your people, not only on a scholarship level, but also on uh, business and, and, and creating movements and creating networks and connections for the family to be able to eliminate uh, cracker resources in a household and being able to substitute that with products from a black-owned business is something that I think that we have been doing and trying very hard to establish amongst the people. But all we can do is bring the information to you. We can't put the gun to your head and force you to go through your home and stop buying, you know, from certain corporations and companies making your enemies rich. We can only give you the tools and the resources to do so. As far as building amongst the community with the think tanks and coming up with solutions and not being one to just always focus on the negative issues that, you know, we are faced with because we all suffer from mental krakatosis, um, I think we do that here very well. And um, I've seen other brothers and sisters, no disrespect to you, uh, may the ancestors you know, give you that energy and, and may it be something that benefits the people. But I've seen a lot of think tanks to where all the people really just sit there and just point at, you know, what's wrong with us, but never provide a solution, you know what I'm saying, to cure the people from our mental sickness or krakatosis that we all suffer from. So I think that here we provide the solution on pretty much every think tank that we've had, even if you go through the archives. Um, though we may provide a solution for you, like I said, we're not going to come to your house and put the AR to the back of your head and tell you you have to do this or else we're going to kill you. You know, we're not going to do all that. It's our duty to drop off the resources, the resources to you on the battlefield, give you the weapons that you need to fight this war. If you pick them up and use them, that's on you. You know, I'm going to cut it short on that. This black ball. Black ball. Resources. Yeah, uh, yeah, you spoke on that. I wanted to hit this. I'm gonna hit this Malcolm. But I don't even. I don't think. I, I'm trying to think. What, what do I want to hit the speech? Uh, I'm going to hit something from this Malcolm X. The last speech. Last speeches. Uh, this was. Uh, this was uh, put out. What was this one put out? This was 
it go into a little beef with him and Elijah Muhammad, but uh, it's something interesting in here. So I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna go to this Malcolm X. Malcolm X last speeches. This was edited by uh, Bruce Perry. Uh, like I said, this was published um, 
and I was there, and the Klan was there. From that day onward, the Klan never interfered with the black Muslim movement in the South. Jeremiah attended Klan rallies, as you read on the front page of the New York Tribune. They never bothered him, never touched him. He never touched a Muslim, and the Muslim never touched him. Elijah Muhammad never let me go back down since January of 1961. I never went south. As long as I remained in the black Muslim movement, again, from January of 1961, because most of the action the Muslims got involved in was action that I was involved in myself, wherever it happened in the country. Where there was an action, it was action that I was involved in because I believed in it. I've never gone along with no Ku Klux Klan. And another one that he had made a deal with was this man, Rockwell. Rockwell and Elijah Muhammad are regular correspondents with each other. You can hate me for telling you this, but I'm going to tell you. Rockwell attended the rally because Elijah Muhammad put the okay on it, and Sharif, the captain of the FOI, Food of Islam, and I had discussed it, wondering why Rockwell could come to our meeting because it didn't help us. But Elijah Muhammad said, let him in. So he had to be let in. No more question what Elijah Muhammad said. Now, if you doubt that this is true, you get all the back issues of Muhammad's speech, newspaper. And you will find articles in it about the Ku Klux Klan actually praising him. Jeremiah interviewed, and I think it was J.B. Stoner for the Muslim newspaper. And the old devil even gave him a contribution that he reported about in that paper. Sure he did. When the brothers in Monroe, Louisiana, were involved in trouble with the police, if you'll recall, Elijah Muhammad got old James Venable. Venable is the Ku Klux Klan, is a, is the Ku Klux Klan lawyer. He's a Ku Klux Klan chieftain, according to the Saturday Evening Post that was up on the witness stand. Go back and read the paper. You'll see that Venable was the one who represented the black Muslim movement in Louisiana. Now, brothers and sisters, until 1961, until 1960, until just before Elijah Muhammad went to the East, there was not a better, better organization among black people in this country than the Muslim movement. It was militant. It made the whole struggle of the black man in this country pick up momentum because of the unity and militancy and the tendency to be uncompromising. All of these images created by the Muslim movement lent weight to the struggle of the black man in this country against oppression. But after 1960, after Elijah Muhammad went over there in December night of 59 and came back in January 60, when he came back, the whole trend of direction that he formerly had taken began to change. And in that change, there's a whole lot of other things that have become come into the picture. But he did begin to become more mercenary, more interested in money, more interested in wealth, and, yes, more interested in girls. And I guess many of you have heard it said that his financial support comes from a rich man in Texas. I heard that while I was in the movement. I've heard it more since I left the movement. A rich man in Texas, you can look any of you, you can look up. Any of you can look up his name. But the FBI knows that too. But they still don't touch him. And never have I seen a man and this rich man who lives in Texas, by the way, lives in Dallas. His headquarters is in Dallas. His um his money is in Dallas, the same city where President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And never have I seen a man in my life more afraid, more frightened than Elijah Muhammad was than John F. Kennedy, was when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. I've never in my life seen a man as frightened as he was. And when I made the statement that I did, why he almost cracked up behind it, because there were all kinds of implications to it that at that time were way above and beyond my understanding. Now, you may wonder why it's so important 
too many interests for the black Muslim movements to remain. But I told you it was the most militant, most uncompromising, most dissatisfied black people in America in it. Many have left it. Many are still in it. The fear has been that if anything happened to Elijah Muhammad and the black Muslim movement would have crumbled, that all of these militants who formerly were in it and were held in check would immediately become involved in the civil rights struggle, and they would add the same kinds of energy to the civil rights struggle that they gave to the black Muslim movement. And there's a great fear. You know yourself, white people don't like for black people to get involved in anything to do with civil rights unless those black people are nonviolent, loving, patient, forgiving, and all that. They don't like it otherwise. All right. I'm, I'm going to end that right I'm gonna end that right there. But um, the brother went, in this speech right here, you know, he, he he really went in on the connection with Elijah and the Klan. He went in on international support for different things in and outside of the country. Talked a little bit about Africa, Asia. Um, it was a very, very, a very interesting uh, speech. He, um, he also, uh, in his speech, he also mentioned Marcus Garvey. Um, another fact, let me, let me, let me, let me get to the point where he mentioned Marcus Garvey. Um, all right. All right. Uh. Let me, I'm, I'm going to back a couple uh, paragraphs. This is page 129. Uh, last speeches, Malcolm X, the last speeches. Uh, when the Afro and when West Indian community, which is an Afro-American community in England, begins to unite and then unite also with the African community in England and reach out and get the Asian community, it's trouble for old John Bull, trouble that he never foresaw before, and this is something that he has to face up to. Likewise, here in America with you and me, for the first time in our history, here you find we have a tendency to want to come together. For the first time, we have a tendency to want to work together. And up to now, no organization on the American continent has tried to unite you and me with our brothers and sisters back home. At no time, none of them. Marcus Garvey did it. They put him in jail. They framed him. The government framed him and put him in jail. Marcus Garvey tried. The only fear that exists is that you and I, once we get united, will also unite with our brothers and sisters. And since they knew that my calling in life as a Muslim, number one, I'm a Muslim for which I'm proud, and in no way has that changed my being a Muslim. All right. I don't want to get into him being a Muslim too much. We're going to leave that to, we're going to leave that to him. We're going to leave that for Malcolm right there. But those are some of the pieces of the last speeches of Malcolm Knight. And all. <laughs> I wanted to read that interesting uh, point that he put in about his dealings with the Klan and uh, how they were in the uh, they were in the work with the Klan to buy in land to uh, to put together this segregation of separatist movement that Elijah Muhammad was talking about to separate. Uh, also, he spoke uh, a rich businessman, and that's H.L. Hunt. Hunt, that was the white man that he was referring to, a uh, business white man who gave money to not only the Nation of Islam, but also to the Ku Klux Klan. He was one of the people who liked to play the Hegelian dialect. 
they like to see how things played out. So he would fund both sides without any, um, you know, provocation. And then you have to ask him for the money. He just putting it up. So that was who we were speaking of with um, in that reference right there. Yo, Black Power, hey, ain't that the catcher cracker? Hey, Joe Hunt, yeah, I believe he is. Hunt, uh, Hunt catch up. Yeah. Hunt yeah. catch up. <laughs> you said that. Hines, uh, Hines is, uh, is uh, John his, Kerry's wife and shit. Yeah, now his, yeah, she married to the Hines. Yeah, the Hines is a family of Hunts. I believe, you know what you're saying? I think he is the same Hunt from the Hunts catch up. Yeah, he that same cracker. That's how come he rich like that. Yeah, H.L. Hunt. But yeah, he was one of the ones he 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 uh, funded you know dual sides. He was that type of uh, white man where he he had no he had no problem with funding everything and everybody. You know what I mean? That was his that was his way of doing. It. Yeah, that's how they do all 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 that shit. All the wars, all the little fighting. That's all guaranteed. You'll find you'll find some pickerwood who who finance it all. Well, baby, that's, that's this. why you got to be careful on shit, man. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Now you know you you know what, brother Little, you saying that, and, and you know on a regular basis right now, I become more and more careful of things that's going on, man. Um, just had you know, there's just several things that just went on, and uh, you know, dealing in my own life, just in the past couple of days, has just let me know that you know you got to be very careful or who you're dealing with, you're dealing people that you talk to, how they look at you after you finish talking to them, you know what I mean, all different types of things. You've got to be very uh, leery because a, a lot of people will, you know, uh, a lot of people are the agent by proxy, I like to say, but our, but our people are trained are trained with a, a hate for the African. So we have to really... We have to, you know, uh, we have to really stay aware of that because a lot of times our love for our people it blinds us to the hate that some of our, some of our people will show to us, and we won't be aware and end up getting hit or blindsided, you know, by things that we should not be blindsided by. But it's all because of our love for our people, and I'm not telling you to start hating your people. I just want you to be aware of our people's condition. Lest you fall victim. Look, man, I'm gonna tell you what Tina Turner say, man. Love ain't nothing but a secondhand emotion, and the motherfuckers ain't got the same emotion you got. You better be weary. Mm-hmm. That's just what it is, man. You got what you got to do our history, man. And historically, we already know what it is. You know what I mean? Historically, you know that's just how it goes. So don't 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 blind yourself with the love so much that you that you run out into the goddamn woods and get ate by the tiger. Exactly. Um, those are people waiting for it. No. Oh, um, you know what? I want to read something. I don't know if I read this up here, but I want I want to read something from this uh this other book. I got medicine, but if anybody. You know, tonight's Think Tank Thursday is food for thought. We're bringing out our uh, favorite pieces of work. Let's read through the literature. If you've got anything that you like to, you know, any piece of work that you like to put in, please do. 
know what I'm saying? Uh, lines are open. Uh, BB48. But, uh, let me see here. Hmm. I'm going to read this thing on a progressive uh, understanding tox- toxemia and the stages of the disease. But the first, before I do that, I want to read from uh, Medicine, which is by Dr. Scott Whitaker, N.D., and uh, Jose Fleming. And uh, on, the, on the back, the cover states the American Death Ceremony. The death ceremony started out as a cruel ritual back in the days of witchcraft. In recent years, it has been developed into a science. It usually takes from 10 to 15 years, however, modern scientific advancements are shortening this period of time. It starts with one simple aspirin for a simple headache. When the one aspirin will no longer cover up the headache, take two. After a few months, when two aspirins will no longer cover the headache, you take one of the stronger compounds. By this time, it becomes necessary to take something for the ulcer that has been caused by the aspirin. Now that you're taking two medicines, you have a good start. After a few months of these medications, will disrupt your liver function. If a good infection develops, you take some penicillin. Of course, the penicillin will damage your red blood corpuscles. It's clean so that you develop anemia. Another medication is then taken to cover up anemia. By this time, all these medications will put such a strain on your kidneys that they should break down. It is now time to take some antibiotics. When these destroy your natural resistance to disease, you can expect a general flare-up of all your symptoms. The next step is to cover up all these symptoms with sulfur drugs. When the kidneys finally plug up, you can have them drain. Some poisons will build up in your system, but you can keep going uh, quite a while this way. By now, the medications will be so confused, they won't know what they're supposed to be doing. But it really doesn't matter. If you have followed every step that's directed, you can now make an appointment with, with your undertaker. The game is played practically by all of Americans, except for the few ignorant souls who follow nature. And so that's the, that's the back cover. So they say all that happens to those except for those few who follow nature, right? Yeah, except for a few ignorant people who follow see, nature. You see? That's what I'm trying to tell you, man. On a real, you got to know who your murderer is. If you don't understand the doctor is your murderer, they don't ever uh, cure shit. They treat shit. Mm-hmm. Got to know the difference between that. And once you start fucking with them, they they job ain't to let you go. If they let you go, they wouldn't be there. They wouldn't they they get paid. They wouldn't be able to get paid and send their kids to high ass private schools and live lovely, nigga. Well, already now you're saying that that's real. That's real talk right there, man. You know what I'm saying? Because that's the that's the main purpose of the doctor is to treat you, not to cure anything. Cures are not to be created. You know what I'm saying? Because a cure is uh, a cure is a liability to business. Right. So we capitalism. Yeah, this capitalism. We can't do good business. If people who sick, we cure and send them out here and they never come back. That ain't going to work for us. And that's one of the problems that we have with this medical, when our medical field is a for-profit medical field. Right. Like, oh, shit. So to be real with you, man, that's one, of, that's one of our main foundations we need. We need to build our medical uh, structure up first. Mm, See, we need, you know, that, that's the problem. We rely on the enemy for fucking everything too much, and at the end of the day, you're going to get wiped out. You're going to get wiped out, and you're going to be too stupid to realize it. It's going to be game over. It's quits. 
There ain't no goddamn video game where we can press reset and come back, man. And that's why, you know, you're saying that, Bubba Lou. That's why, you know, nowadays I'm finding, I'm seeing the, the, the sisters, they starting to get the, uh, the, 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 what they call the doulas and stuff like that. They're having their babies at home. You know what I'm saying? You find the people, you know, they not really, you know, you find cats, they, they juicing. You know what I'm saying? We ain't going out, going, we ain't going to, uh, hold on, he, he mentioned them. We ain't going to, uh, I'm going to mention them a little bit, but we not at Burger King's. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We ain't mm-hmm. not, we just not, we just not hitting all this, this savage stuff up. You know what I'm saying? If I do get something that's for fast food, I get something that's cooked. I don't go get no burgers, no shit like that. You know, if it's fast food, it's like from a restaurant. It's cooked food. You know, and that shit is, you can't be safe there. But I'm saying, oh, I, I just strive to, you know, we, we as people, we striving to make moves away from that, uh, you know, such as, such a, a murderous type of lifestyle, cause we, you know, the and, and, and the worst thing, the oh man, what killed me is our inner city uh, stores, man. I'm talking about man, you go to the corner store, man. You go to the corner store here, man. You see maybe seventy different types of potato chips, right? It's one of all different types and different kinds. Thirty different little coffee cakes and cans, you know, little cakes and shit all over the place. You know what I'm saying? Little Debbie Noir type of shit. Joker ain't got no only, you know, they might have a banana in there. Only thing is Joker keeping his onions and potatoes. You know what I'm saying? You know, and you know, if you want lettuce, you rather, you know, he got lettuce, but it ain't for it ain't to sell. It's really for making sandwiches. It ain't really the sell. Ain't no produce, no produce, you know, at all. Except for that time, you know, and then everything else is just, you know, um, like I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I asked him I, I, at the store. I said, yo, listen, man, let me get a juice. I'm sitting on the outside of the store. You know what I mean? He brings back shit that I, yo, look, man, we can't be drinking 50 cent juices. If you're an adult, you shouldn't drink a juice called 50 cent. I'm telling you right now. If you buy, yeah, if you go to a corner store and you buy a juice that costs, and it's supposed to be juice, and it costs 50 cents, know that all you're buying is poison. If you buy your children a little 25-cent teeny juice, a teeny t- you're killing your child. That's death. Go ahead and spend a dollar, get the small, uh, very fine apple juice, orange juice or something. Don't, you know, like, like I mean, don't just kill yourself. There's certain things, you know, we can regulate ourselves out of. And, you know, if you just can't afford to spend that on the juice, then just drink water anyway. But, you know, just don't go in there killing yourself inside of little spots like that. But I'm going to, uh, I'm going to put this thing here because I want, I want to have the stages of disease. Uh, this is Chapter 10 for Medicine. And that's M E D I S I N medicine uh, by uh, Dr. Scott Whitaker. Toxemia is a polluted condition of the body's own biological terrain due to impurities in the bloodstream derived from uh, adulterated foods and environmental toxins. These bodily pollutants are becoming more in, are becoming more ingested, creating a widespread of allergies, ear infections. Skin diseases, slow growth, neurological and mental retardation. One of the contributors to toxemia is the overworked digestive system. 
This starts from consuming foods from your fast food restaurant. Matt Killers, Murder King, Jack in the Casket, Hell Taco, Crispy Grease, Crack in the Box, and KFC, Kidney Failure and Cancer. With their drive through a death menus, always remember these food chains to care less about your health. It's all about profit. The progressive development of disease, first stage, general fatigue, a depletion of physical and mental energy. This condition is normally accompanied by muscular tension, hardening of the arteries, frequent urination, uh, sweating, constipation, brain fog, and short periods of feeling cold or hot. Mentally, we start to lose our clarity, active perception, and accurate response. To recover from this stage, it usually takes a short time from a few hours to a few days. Once adequate rest is obtained and the consumption of whole foods, herbal teas, tonics, quality water, and exercise are incorporated, the equilibrium and health once again begins to manifest. Stage three, aches and pains. When feelings of general fatigue, prevail, we begin to experience occasional pains and aches, headaches, cramps, and other various pain symptoms appear from time to time. Temporary shortness of breath, irregular heartbeat, fever, and chills also begin to appear. Mentally, we may experience occasional depression, worry, and insecurity. Uh, and stage three. Blood stagnation. As the dietary lifestyle is continued through adolescence on to adulthood, along with environmental pollution, our quality of blood, including red blood cells, white blood cells, and blood plasmas, become unsuitable for maintaining harmony within our natural surroundings. The quality of our blood determines the quality of our blood, body, cells, and tissues, organs, and systems. Blood disorders create various abnormal conditions in our body from which symptoms of sickness arise. Acidosis high and low pressure anemia and other high and low blood pressure anemia and other diseases occur during this stage including leukemia, epilepsy, asthma and skin disease. Stage uh the fourth stage emotional disorder. If an improper quality of blood is not in circulation for a prolonged period of time, various emotional disorders begin to surface. Short temper short temper, excitement Anger, frustration, and general feeling of despair are frequent in daily life. Physical movements become more rigid, and we gradually lose flexibility in both body and mind. Fifth stage, organ disease. This, this stage produces gradual changes in the quality and function of our organs and glands. This is where the symptoms of atherosclerosis, atherosclerosis, diabetes, gall, kidney stone formation, appear where the beginning stage of some organ cancers, multiple sclerosis, and other autoimmune diseases begin to manifest. Sixth stage, nervous disorder. This is the stage where physical paralysis and mental illness like schizophrenia and paranoia begin. Physical and mental coordination of various functions gradually diminish. A negative view of life and alternatives begin to dominate the mind. Even suicidal tendencies may be discussed. Seventh stage, arrogance. This is the most developed form of sickness along with denial, which is the foundation of humanity's fall altogether. Selfishness, egocentricity, vanity, self-pride, and self-justification become the core of hopelessness. Every physical, mental, and spiritual illness belongs to one of the seven stages listed. All diseases are interdependent and interconnected with one another. With one another. 
They are symptoms stemming from the same root cause, diet, spirit, and lifestyle toxicity. As life begins, we are only we are only a natural and divine manifestation that is only familiar with the zest for life. We accept the idea that we will pass on some types of illness like heart disease, cancer, diabetes, or some other degenerative disease because our parents or grandparents did. This ignorant universal belief by modern society is certainly contrary to the divine law of nature in human life. As long as we continue to live away from the infinite laws of divine wisdom, happiness, health, and longevity, we will become only a fantasy as we proceed slowly down the road of self-blame and negative energy. That's how. And uh, that was in seven different stages of um, disease. Like you said, you know, uh, I know all of us have felt one of these stages at some point in time, have fell into one of these. Uh, but as you stated, one of, the, one of the best things is that we have to, uh, more clean living, you know, a lot of the things that are in our diet, our diet and what we drink uh, help either eliminate toxins or help produce and accumulate toxins. So uh, fasting also, one of the things that I suggest for everybody is, you know, every every once every once in a while, you know, maybe every two months or so, go on a fast. And even if you try it once a month, where you just fast at least during the day. Not just saying you don't eat anything for the whole day, but just don't eat anything during the day hours. Wait until, you know, night hours and eat a little bit, go to sleep, you know. But just give your body time so it is not um, working on that food because, it is a stress on the body to work on the food. A lot of times when you're working on the body, working on food, it's taking a lot of water out of your system. This reduces stress, anxiety, it just reduces headaches, uh, causes of fatigue, makes you feel like you're dizzy. Uh, all the things, these things happen when you are losing water in the body, which is, um, happens when you are eating constantly or your stomach is overworking um, is overworking putting foods in there and digesting. Well, you're overworking digesting foods that you put in there. Uh, excuse me. I thought I was Yoda for a second. Said that backwards. But Black Power, that's what I wanted to read out on the brother's, uh, brother's book, Medicine. Yeah, a, a very interesting book, very good book. Definitely you should. Um, I, I, I do think that this is a book that people should pick up because it's, it's so many different uh, so many different uh, chapters or a plethora of subjects. Uh, as you see, what I, what I just read was um, out of Chapter 10. And right in Chapter 11, he gives a, and I'm going to read it, it says, Death by Medical Sense. Uh, the Lazol study was based on statistical analysis of 33 million American hospital admissions in 1994 where hospitals that prescribed medications were analyzed. Two million people were injured from prescription drugs. 2.1% of the patients experienced a serious adverse drug reaction. 4.7% of all hospital admissions were due to adverse drug reactions. Excuse me. Fatal drug uh, reactions occurred in 0.19% uh, of the patient. Fatal, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. 4.7% of all hospital admissions were due to adverse drug reactions. Fatal adverse drug reactions occurred in 0.019% of the patients and 0.013% of admissions. Researchers concluded that a projected 106,000 deaths occurred 
annually due to adverse drug reactions. In the year 2000, a study in which the increase in hospitalization costs per patient suffering an adverse drug reaction was $5,483. Therefore, the cost for the result study, 2.2 million patients with serious adverse effects costing about $12 billion. Adverse effects commonly emerge after FDA approval of most drugs. The quality of the drug cannot be measured until it has been massively administered across the country or globe for several years. So, what that is saying is that this new shit that they just throw out on you, every time we turn around, they got some new, uh, here go, here go this, we got the new lift the trough, and here comes some new, uh, come get your penis enhancer, come get your new, uh, your Viagra's, uh, get your kidney medicine, or you, you just... You suffer from high blood pressure, get your high blood pressure medicines, all of this, all of this shit that they're giving out, all of these things that they're giving out, we're suffering at the end of the day, Paul. You know what I'm saying? We're suffering from all of these things and suffering badly from all of these things. This is something that we have to definitely get a hold of. But um, anybody want to add on from there? I just want to put that in real quick for my brother. Well, it's an excellent book. I'll tell y'all all. Good chance. Get it. It's worth it. It's definitely worth it. Pick it up. It, uh, it helps. And one of the things that it does, I'll say this for the book, is that it gave me some insight into things that are going on in the hospital. And... Being that right now I have a blood clot in my leg, so I'm trying to get this um, taken care of. So I'm eating differently. Also, I'm taking some of the medication that they gave me. I only gave me one medication, but I'm taking that. But changing my diet up some, just to you know, just try to make sure that my blood flowing smoother and all of that. But he gives like you know, a little tips on how to quest, not what questions to ask, but how to question these doctors. Things to ask, you know, things to ask for, you know, as uh, things that they they are obligated to make sure that they give you. Like any, like like I was saying with the medication, anytime they give you medication, they obligate to give you a rundown of uh, the pros and cons of the medication, and also to send you home with paperwork with the pros and cons. Also, when you go to a pharmacy. Pharmacies are also under that same under that same uh, law that they they are to definitely make sure that um, you are given information on the pros and cons on any medication that you're getting. So uh, always be aware of that. But as our brother Little said, you know they're killing us, and this is like. It's like they want to kill 100% of us, right? They want to kill 100% of us, right? But they might only they might only tamper with 50% of us who are going into the hospital. But you don't want to, we don't want to keep taking that risk that we wanted the ones because, like I said, you know they got the good and the bad. Some things will help you, some things won't. But you don't want to be in a percentage of the ones who might mess around and get knocked off. That you go in there with something that they want to experiment on and let you go down. 
You don't want to be in that number. You know what I'm saying? You don't want to go in there, they get your blood, you got that rare blood type, and they find a way to let you pass right on away by accident, on purpose. You know what I mean? You don't pass away accidentally on purpose messing around with these people. But uh, that was my that was my claim for right there. Uh, let's see here. Well, I wanted to put this in real quick. So um, uh, this is just a little something from uh, Doctor Sakamusa Barasango. And uh, I just wanted to read a couple. Oh, I just wanted to read some out of where uh, this is from African people in European holidays, a mental genocide. Uh, I wanted to just, you know, read some of these uh, Africans who were seven to see. Now, uh, hold up. Africans of the Tikwini sailed the seven seas centuries upon centuries before Columbus. Africans are present in the Americas, which, of course, is not called that at the time. We find Af- evidence of the African presence within the date from as early as 1200 to 650 B.C. For millennia, Africans have sailed the high seas of Phoenicians, and African people circumnavigated the world in the days of the great pyramid builders of Ethiopia and Egypt. In fact, voyages from Africa to America are somewhat commonplace during certain areas of African history. Some 50 of these voyages have been recorded by Professor Leo Weiner in a three-volume work, Africa and the Discovery of America. Black historian, um, historian Dr. John T. Jackson presents many of these facts in his book, Man, God, and Civilization. All the references to the African presence in America are extensively, extensively investigated by another black scholar, Professor Ivan Van Cernema, and his monumental work that came before Columbus. Would that we had time on this expedition to investigate all the wonders of this period, but because of the nature of this voyage, we must travel on. However, not be not dismayed, we will return on another voyage in book three of this series. At this time, we will tarry a while longer. All right. They got Life Erickson, who's named me Lucky, one of the sons of notorious Eric Garrett. According to Norse tradition, the saga of Eric Garrett explored the coast of the North America between the years 1001-1002 after his ship was driven off course, landing at a place he called Vinland, Wineland. Um, named so after the wine and Norsemen are said to have made from his grapes and berries. This Vinland seems to have been located somewhere along the New England coast between Newfoundland and Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The tell further states that the explorations were continued by another Viking for a period of about 15 years one, ex- one such excursion resulted in the death of these brothers who was killed by an Indian in a one-on-one struggle. The rest of the party who accompanied him was driven off the land by indigenous ha- inhabitants to seem to have ended the Norse's exploration. All right, we got 1310. Mansa Abu Bakari, the first, does not, um, does not believe it is impossible to sell the limits of the neighboring areas and join his powerful African empire. After all, he reaches hazardous people navigated the 3,500,000 square miles of space of the mighty Zahara and caravans um, transported on dromedary camels, which they refer to as the ship of the desert, and the desert itself as the sandy sea. With this in mind, he has 200, with this in mind, he has 200 sailing vessels equipped with Malayan sailors and sea captains, 200 supply posts with ant 
supply boats with ample provisions, gold, and other items of trade, along with dry meats, grains, and fruits, preserving new ceramic jars to last for at least two years after the celebration of the proper rituals and sacraments in the midst of great ceremony. Abu Bakari, the first says his royal navy forth with the command, return only when you have reached the extremity of the ocean or when you have exhausted your food and water. Years later, Master Kankan Musa, recalling this incident, relates they went away, their absence was long before any of them returned. Finally, a single ship appeared. We asked the, the captain about the adventure. Principally replied, we sailed for a long time up to a moment when we occurred encountered the mid-ocean, something like a river with a violent current. My ship was lost, the other sailed on, and gradually, as each of them entered this place, they disappeared, did not come back. We did not know what happened to them. As to me, I returned where I was and did not enter that current. In book three of this series, we will carefully examine the outcome of this expedition. Um, 1311, he went ahead and, uh, you know, he uh, went and prepared for his own self. I'm sure with a fleet of 4,000 vessels, never to be seen again in Africa. Um, Sometimes later, his statue physique appears on the shores of the South American coast, black as midnight, clothed in cloth and white, silken and unbroken, and brocaded robes with a jeweled turban upon his head, standing upon a brilliant gold trimmed pavilion, was held as the reincarnation of cultural culture, the Aztec deity of reign and posterity, son of the Most High God. So they say that um, Abu Bakari got over there, and. Uh, end up getting a statue made in South America. We have to check that. We have to check that out. And uh, we'll get that together. We'll check that out and uh, make sure that we, we find the information for the people, make sure that we know uh, whether or not that statue still exists. We want to see if it still exists. So we'll do that and make sure the child and just make sure that the family knows. But with that, that's my that's my last book for the night. Uh, I do have several more I could read from, but that was my last book that I had out of three ten to four, five, six reference, six different books. Let's see, uh, Shaka Musa Barashango is what I just uh, read from lastly. Um, African people and European holidays and mental genocide. Uh, I read from tonight also medicine by Dr. Scott Whitaker. Also a very, uh, very good book. Also, I put in a, a passage from Malcolm X, The Last Speeches. This was uh, 1989. That's edited by Bruce Perry. Let me see here. Also, I read passages from uh, The Assassination of Khalid Muhammad by Jimmy Riley. And, uh, also, I read from Marcus Garvey, Hero, a first biography, and that was Tony Martin. And last but not least, uh, Amos Wilson, A Blueprint for Black Power.
Uh, Brother Rahe Ru. I know our brother, he's just taking his uh, thing off of you right now real quick. And he'll, he'll be on the line. Can you put the name of that book which you last read about health? Oh, okay. The book about health. Let me see. Medicine. I'm putting it in right now. Now, Scott Whitaker. Whitaker, uh, Brother Abel, you know, uh, you're saying, I'm about to look at Oh, beautiful, yeah. Well, now I want you to put the, uh, the titles of the, uh, of what you read from, man, to make sure that people get the titles, what you read from. The first, uh, the first uh, passage that I read was out of the ancient Egyptian pyramid text, uh, Writings from the Ancient World by James P. Allen. The second um, passage that I read was out of the Blueprint for Black Power by uh, Dr. Amos Wilson. They'd have one more. Uh, we could either go into that or we could say... Oh, no, go ahead. I was just, just doing all the... I, I, I'm read out. I, was just, I have seven. I, I'm not like I put in seven. One more than I thought I did. The last one is going to be um, Out of the Wretched of the Earth. That's by Frank Fanning. Thus we see that the primary uh, manichism which governed colonial society is preserved intact during the period of decolonization. That is to say that the settler never ceases to be the enemy. The opponent, the foe that must be overthrown, the oppressor in his own sphere starts the process, a process of domination, of exploitation, and of pillage. And in the other sphere, the coiled, plundered creature, which is the native, provides fodder for the process as best he can. The process which moves uninterruptedly from the banks of the colonial territory to the places and the docks of the mother country. And this becomes zone, the sea has a smooth surface, the palm tree stirs gently in the breeze, the waves lap against the pebbles, raw materials are ceaseless are ceaselessly transported, justifying the presence of the settler, and all the while the native bent double more dead than alive exists. Interminably, in an unchanging dream, the settler makes history. His life is an approach, an odyssey. He is the absolute beginning. This land was created by us. He is the unceasing cause. If we leave, all is lost, and the country will go back to the Middle Ages. Over against him, torpid, torpid creatures wasted by fevers, obsessed by ancestral customs, form an almost in, 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 inorganic background for the innovating 
dynamicism of colonial M-E-R-C-A-N-T-I-L-I-S-M. Can't really pronounce that word, so help me out there. Don't be a bone. The settler makes history and is conscious of making it, and because he constantly refers to the history of his mother country, he clearly indicates that he himself is the extension of that mother country. Thus, the history which he writes is not the history of the country, which he plunders, but the history of his own nation in regards to all that she skins off, all that she violates and stores, the immobility to which the native is condemned can only be called in question if the native decides to put an end to history of colonialization, the history of pillage, and to bring into existence the history of the nation, the history of decolonization, a world divided into compartments, a motionless, mechanistic world, a world of statues, the statue of the general who carried out the conquest, the statue of the engineer who built the bridge, a world which is sure of itself, which crushes with its stones the back laid by whips. This is the colonial world. The native is a being hemmed, and apartheid is simply one form of the division into compartments of the colonial world. The first thing which the native learns is to stay in its place and not to go beyond certain limits. This is why the dreams of the native are always of muscular powers. His dreams are of action and of aggression. I dream I am jumping, swimming, running, climbing. I dream that I burst out laughing, that I span a river in one stride, or that I am followed by a flood of motor cars which never catch up with me during the period of colonization. The native never stops achieving his freedom from 9 in the evening until 6 in the morning. The colonized man will first manifest this aggressiveness which has been deposited in his bones against his own people. This is the period where the niggers beat each other up and the police and the magistrates do not know which way to turn when faced with the astonishing ways of crime in North America. We shall see later how this phenomenon should be judged when the native is confronted with the colonial order of things. He finds he is in a state of permanent tension. The settler's world is a hostile world which funds the native. But at the same time, it is a world of which he is envious. We have seen that the native never ceases to dream of putting himself in the place of the settler, not of becoming the settler, but of substituting himself for the settler. This hostile world, ponderous and aggressive because it fends off the colonized masses with all the harshness it is capable of, represents not merely a hell from which the swiftest flight. A hell from which the swiftest flight possible is desirable, but also a paradise close at hand, which is guarded by terrible watchdogs. The native is always on alert, for since he can only make out with difficulty the many symbols of the colonial world, he is never sure whether or not he has crossed the frontier confronted with a world ruled by the settler. The native is always presumed guilty, but the native's guilt is never a guilt which he accepts. It is rather a kind of a curse or a sort of swords of Damocles or Damocles, for in his innermost spirit, the native admits no accusation. He is overpowered, but not tamed. He is treated as an inferior, but he is not convinced of his inferiority. He is patiently waiting until the settler is off his guard to fly at him. 
the native's muscles are always tense. You can't say that he is terrorized or even apprehensive. He is, in fact, ready at a moment's notice to exchange the role of the quarry for that of the hunter. The native is an oppressed person whose permanent dream is to become the persecutor. The symbols of social order, the police, the bugle calls in the barracks, military parades and the waving flags are at one and the same time inhibitory and stimulating for they do not convey the message. Don't dare to budge. Rather, they cry out, get ready to attack. And in fact, if the native had any tendencies to fall asleep and to forget the settler's haunter, and the settler's anxiety to test the strength of the colonial system would remind him at every turn that the great showdown cannot be put off indefinitely. That impulse to take the settler's place implies a tonicity of muscles the whole time. In fact, we know that in a certain emotional conditions, the presence of an obstacle accentuates the tendency towards motion. The settler's native relationship is a mass relationship. The settler pits brute force against the weight of numbers. He is an exhibitionist. His preoccupation with scrutiny makes him remind the native out loud that there he alone is master. The settler keeps alive in the native an anger which he deprives of outlet. The native is trapped in the tight links of the chains of colonialism, but we have seen that inwardly the settler can only achieve a persuadal petrification, the native's muscular tension finds an outlet regularly in bloodthirsty explosions in tribal warfare. Infused between sets and encroils between individuals or individuals are concerned, a positive negation of common sense is evident. While the settler or the policeman has the right, the live long day to strike the native to insult him and to make him crawl to them you will see the native reaching for his knife at the slightest hostile or aggressive glance cast on him by any other native for the last resort of the native is to defend his personality. Vis-a-vis his brother. Tribal feuds only serve to perpetuate old grudges buried deep in the memory by throwing himself with all his force into the vendetta the native tries to persuade himself that, colonial, that colonialism does not exist, that everything is going on as before, that history continues. Here, on the level of communal organizations, we clearly discern the well-known behavior patterns of avoidance. It is as if plunging into a fraternal bloodbath allowed them to ignore the obstacle and to put off till later the choice, nevertheless the inevitable, which opens up the question of armed resistance to colonialism. Thus, a collective auto-destruction in a very concrete form is one of the ways in which the native's muscular tension is set free. All these patterns of conduct are those of the death reflex. When faced with danger, a suicidal behavior which proves to the settler whose existence and domination is by them all the more justified, that these men are not reasonable human beings in the same way the native manages to bypass the settler. A belief in fatality removes all blame from the oppressor. The cause of misfortunes and of poverty is attributed to God. He is in fate, and in this way, the individual accepts the, dis, the disterrogation ordained by God, bows down before the settler and his lot, and 
by a kind of interior restabilization acquires a stony calm. Uh, I read that passage because to me, that kind of touches on exactly where we are right now with everything that's going on right now. So uh, if you haven't had a chance to pick up the wretched of the earth, uh, it is a very good read from beginning to end. Uh, It is a a read that I suggest that you go out and pick up if you don't already have it in your library. Uh, Any questions that anybody would like to ask on anything that I've read, I'll answer to the best of my ability. Other than that, that was my... uh, that was my last book for the night. Like I said before, family, if y'all don't have it, go out and get it. Most definitely uh, a lot of hard-hitting information there that you can uh, grow within self with. Like Black Power on that. Black Power. Black Power on that. Black Power. Uh... Me and Sony, uh, I'd like to thank everybody for coming out, throwing their books in. You know, me and Brother Hey, we were down tonight. What was that right there? Uh, if he, if, if who leaves the world, will go back to cavemen. Oh. All right. Somebody asked a question in there, Brother Hey, about some cavemen and stuff like that. But... Let's see here. Uh, come on, open up properly. What was the question? Uh, I didn't hear. No, it was, it was not it. I guess you answered the question during the time. You answered the question at the same time. While, while you were talking, you answered the question. Uh, um, but we'd like to say thank you to all the family for coming out tonight. Tonight was our book night. You know, we make sure that we do this book event. Hey, once in a while, we try to make sure that we come in at least once a month. Just read from some of our uh, selected, from some of the selections out of your library, bring your, uh, you know, bring your selections out. You just pass it to the family that you know that you think is interesting, even if it's a newer book. You know, we'll we're, we're add on and get on in with that information. We always like to uh, broaden our horizons and bring up, uh, you know, different books from different authors, especially African authors. That's when the majority of everything that I read tonight, I would say, was, was African authors. Uh, no, one book, one book was uh, a terrible hope. One, but did I read from that book? Did I read from the making of the white man? I didn't even read from it. No, so I didn't read no terrible hope books. Wow, I'm good. I'm terrible hope free tonight. So that's a good thing. But with that being said. Y'all make sure y'all come back. Come see us this full house Saturday. Me and Brother Little. Brother Little, you out there? I see, bro. I see y'all, Brother Little, out there. I know y'all yes, out there. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Brother. You know, uh, this Saturday, Brother Little, man, I think, you know, we want to just go through this. We want to have an opening, you know, just an open line, maybe discussion on this uh, evolution. Or where did the camel who come from? But we had this discussion before. We took it only to a certain extent. But we just want to uh, clean this on up, you know, clean the camel who up. We want to see where our people's minds are at about what type of science they're using and get some of that information. And then we'll come back maybe in about another week or so because we, uh, you know, and bring 
and bring on uh, uh, seem like it's going to be a noted rival to our um, conclusions on on what we uh, on what we looking at with this evolution thing. But you know, it seems that you know it seems that it's something that needs to be discussed because people are definitely not in agreement at all. You know. Um, so uh, I just was want to uh, hit you up with that. You know, just you know, let the people. That's all good. We're gonna have our brother Aunt come through. Uh, more than like you know, you know, because okay, we're gonna have a little open discussion, right? I'm gonna let him know he come on through. We just want you know, just put out some of the theories and just put some of the stuff out. Talk about some of the names of the of the different creatures and all that. Um. We'll, we'll, we'll see oh, how yeah. we you know how we do about that, though, brother. You know how we feel about that, brother. Yeah. I got yeah, something you know. I like to throw on the table, but I'll wait until y'all finish with the discourse. So. Oh, Nick. No doubt, no doubt. But, yeah, we, you know, we'll see We'll see how it pans now. I'm, I'm going to hit them up, and we'll just see how this thing goes. We might push it back to maybe the Saturday after this, so we can just go ahead and put together a nice little, you know, I think, uh, you know, a nice little PowerPoint. I got enough. I got enough little slides and stuff like that, man. We might be able to put something together and, you know, just drop that all right into the uh, chat room and just go over it right during the show. Oh, I think that's what's up. What's up? That's sad, but, um, hey, Rudy. Because I know, uh, know Ang's been wanting to box. He's been wanting to slap box on that topic for a minute. Yeah, yeah, man. He, he, he told us we mad, man. He said we mad. We doing, we making rookie mistakes. We mad. Right, well, we we tried right, well, too hard. Yeah, I will. Yeah, let's 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 get continued. I love this. Yeah, you know. <laughs> we hear and appreciate your opinion, but uh, that ain't gonna stop us from doing what we do. You do. They do what they do over there in their way, and I disagree with a lot of things that they do. My only disagreement with them, I don't have a problem personally with them over there. It's just that from my dealings with them over the years is that if I ask them a question or knowledge that they're putting out to give out the sources of what led you to that information, I have yet been able to get that anyone over there so when you make a move like that, I look at it as if it's like if we building together, and I think I said this recently, and whatever it is we building on, if it's based on for the people and you're sitting there and you're pocketing it for yourself and you're holding on to that and you don't want to share that with the people, then how can I take unifying or building, or even sitting, you know, as a student while you are putting out information, how can I put myself to, you know, to do that when I know that this is what you are doing? So, you know, it would be different if they were giving out the information if everybody is so wrong within going against the facts or the information that, that they put out it's easy to have words come out your mouth and say somebody's wrong. You have to be able to provide, you know what I'm saying, where you got your information from so that the person that is wrong can correct themselves. Other than that, you just saying that they're wrong and saying anything is nothing more than just words coming out your mouth. And words don't mean shit. Actions mean everything. 
you know, anybody can sit for hours and give a lecture or you can write a book on nonsense and try to persuade me into believing, you know, that this is actual fact. But if you ain't got nothing there that's solid of a foundation to say that, look, you can go here and see that this happened here or you have these great scholars' works here, which is the backbone to how I came up with this here, and this is where you can go and find it. It was written by such and such. There, there's several oh, no, uh, writings on it, you know what I'm saying, that were dispersed at a certain time period. You know, we don't – I've never seen them do that. And because I have not seen them do that, I no longer can deal or support anything that they do. Now, on an individual level, I like Brother Ark. You know what I'm saying? I think Brother Ark has a lot to offer. I think that the members of the Amin Ra squad has a lot to offer. But, you know what I'm saying, when I have to look at the reason of why I don't fully associate with them on a 100% level like that, you know what I'm saying? Until I get that from them on a constant level, it's just not something that I can feed into because otherwise it's like you're chasing a limelight. It's like you want publicity. It's like you want to be that black power superstar. And it's like if that's your lane, that's on you. It's just your lane and what I stand for and how I see my people and the vision for our liberation, that conflicts with that. And due to that, you know what I'm saying, and certain individuals and brothers and sisters, I got to cut and, and go my way, you go your way. We may be able to sit down and have a conversation and build amongst each other, but as a collective whole, I can't do it. But what I was going to get into before he brought that up, because uh, I don't really believe in speaking on someone when they're not there, as you're giving them power over you, but anyway, um, I would like for us to build on, because I noticed that this has been an issue and unless we enforce a solution to it and put that solution into action, it's always going to be an issue. There is still an issue between the black king and the black queen. So this is what I'm going to ask. To all the black queens that listen and that are a part of what we do, I want you to reach out to all the queens in the community. And this is the topic that I want to have, and it's going to take more than one to where we might have to do this like once a month or two times a month. I want the sisters and the kings to come together. It doesn't have to be at the same time. We can have the women one night, brothers one night, and we can have them both of them. But whatever it is, and, and I'm pretty much sure I know what it is, we are divided amongst each other. There is no real strength and love and growth and development of growing a village or building a kingdom between the black king and the black queen because whatever the hatred that exists amongst each other that was put here by our enemy has us at odds with each other. And I see a lot of sisters, I'm not going to name every different community, I'm just going to look at it as a whole. Uh, I'm going to say those that are confused, those that are on the line, those that are new, those that may have been in it for a minute, but somehow you are being misguided and redirected. I've seen a lot of misguided and redirection, and I've seen a lot of abuse and a lot of fucked up things being done to women by our own brothers. I'm not saying no names. I don't do that. I'm not naming communities, but I do know that this is an issue and this is a problem. 
only way that we can deal with it is to come together as men and as women and find a solution to whatever our hatred amongst each other is. You know what I'm saying? I see a lot of women being mentally manipulated by a lot of brothers uh, in the black power structure um, being, you know, conned to the bed to get in between their legs when these brothers have um, wives at home, you know what I'm saying? But you want to fuck on every queen that will lay down and open her legs to you. And you're not being genuine with the queens. You're not telling them the truth. You're feeding them lies, you know what I'm saying? You're not telling your wife. If, if you believe in having more than one wife, you're not going about it right. You are trying to still be the player, pimp, manipulator, smooth talker, uh, you know, womb cracker, whatever you want to call yourself. You know what I'm saying? All you are doing is further fucking up the minds of our women. And while you're fucking up the minds of our women because you lead them one way and you tell them one way, but then you go back to doing the same sly shit, cracker shit, just to lay down with them, you know what I'm saying, to soothe your loins, that's not nothing of the black power structure. That is not what a king does. Uh, some of the queens fall victim to this. Some of the queens sometime or the conspirator behind this on their end. This is, like I said, we all suffer from krakatosis, so there's only one way for us to deal with this is to get out there and put it on the air. Now, black woman, I know that things have happened to you, and I know it's due to what happened to us in the courses of history. I do know that, you know, there was a time when the black woman needed the black man most, when the cracker savage beast was doing the most foulish savagery shit to her, and even right in front of us that we weren't there for you. We know that also on our end, the same shit happened to us, and when we needed you most, you aren't there for us. So all of this is a foundation to the key of why we are at odds with each other. So as long as we can go over what got us like this and then provide the solution from then till now at this day and age and look at why we hate each other so much or why we are at odds with each other so much, I'm just going to put it out there like this. If black man, if you hate the black woman, black woman, if you hate the black man, then there's nothing that you can do in the fight for the liberation of the race of all people. If you are an integrator, if you go out and you sleep with other races, you are not providing anything for the liberation of all people. You are part of the problem. You know what I'm saying? So with that being said, um, sisters, get as many sisters that together as you can. Um, it doesn't matter the, the, the size of numbers. Only things that matter is that we start to tackle this issue, because this is a real issue. And as long as this is an issue and our enemies are aware of it, they're going to feed on it. With a lot of other issues that we face within a black power structure, everything doesn't need to be broadcasted to the world. Some things need to stay within black power doors and dealt with on a black power underground level. Never let your enemy know your weakness, or if there's a division amongst you because he will feed on that and he will play that to his ability to further turn you against each other. So, you know, you want to look and say, oh, this brother Asian, this brother that, this sister this, this sister that. That may be true, but let's look at why or what led to letting these individuals in. Oh. And once you make everything clear, 
you know what I'm saying? And, and you can see you can see the force for the trees, and it's right in front of you. You won't keep making the same goddamn mistakes as everything is clear, and the path will be laid down in front of you. So it's just one step at a time. And I'm going to end it off on that. Right now. Well, Brother Abel ended it all for us for the night. We'll be headed to the after party. We'd like to thank everyone for showing up tonight. Our feet on the ground. Always a hot topic rocking. Slaughterhouse Saturday is coming. We'll be destroying the lies built up against us. As Africans, as you know, our theme is who's still betraying the African Revolution. It'll be John Henry Clark Knight all night, Dr. Amos Wilson all night. We'll be on the consciousness and exactly who, who's Eurocentric science are we really going to use? Are we going to come with an African perspective with this information? So that would be the thing that we want to deal with. As a matter of fact, I think that that's what, that's what we might have to deal with Saturday. And before we even deal with whether or not we're going to deal with the um, evolution thing, I think that we need to deal with uh, perspective, how things are written, you know, because all of these things that are found are given the story. So we want to go through who's giving us the story. But with that, with that being said, you know, we like to praise Nat Turner, give glory to God, be long with the spirit of Dr. Khaled Abdul-Muhammad, praise Harriet Tubman, glory to Ida B. Wells, long with the spirit of Sister Fanny Duhama. Um, again, thank y'all for coming out. Sort of how Saturday, 9.30 p.m. The will be before the end. Crack it in the trunk. I'll make it too. This episode is sponsored by Schwann's.com. What are you having for dinner tonight? Hmm. Good question. Schwann's Home Delivery has a solution for you. Stock up your freezer with high-quality frozen foods like premium meats and sides, delicious ready-made meals, ice cream, and more. No subscriptions, no memberships, just a friendly yellow truck that's been delivering food for almost 70 years. Listeners of this show get a special deal. Get 20% off your first order with code YUM20. Check out schwanns.com backslash yum for details.